everyone and welcome to episode 162 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke, back here around the Oaken Table, joined shortly by Kyle Ross of the Top Rope Nation podcast over in Ohio to continue our series on the WWF in the year 1991. This is part 2A that you'll be listening to today of our conversation. I hope everybody listening is safe and sound. Just to get to a few little housekeeping tidbits before we get rocking and rolling here, you can listen to part 1A and 1B of this series at squaredcirclegazette.podbean.com or squaredcirclegazette.com. Check it out. Obviously, you don't want to dive into the middle of something here. If you want to hear what's been said so far, we've covered January to March up to this point. We're covering from April today. On top of that, since the news is out that the fine folks at Vice will be doing a Dark Side of the Ring show covering Brian Pillman, if you are tantalized with the idea of such a show, you should know. Uh, the fine folks, the story producers, did get in touch with me back in July to talk with me about what this show is going to look like. So if you want to know more about Brian Pillman, do what the producers of Dark Side of the Ring did. Go to the source. Go and check out Crazy Like a Fox, the definitive chronicle of Brian Pillman, 20 years later, the 2017 Wrestling Observer Award winner for the best wrestling book. Check it out. You won't regret it. Buy it for somebody for Christmas, by all means, uh, and enjoy. I think that pretty much covers everything, gets it all out of the way. So with that said, let's move now to part 2A of our series covering the WWF in 1991. So glad to have him back after a very successful 1990 series and a very enjoyable part one uh, looking at 1991. I am very happy to be joined once again by Kyle Ross in Ohio by way of the Top Rope Nation podcast. Kyle, uh, welcome back. Glad to have you again. And we've been talking about this off air Part one of uh, 1991 was obviously very fun to kind of go through as it was, but this next couple of parts that we're going to be talking about here, this is what we're here for. And boy, is there a lot of information. <laughs> 11 pages, pages of notes. Yes, 11 pages of notes, I believe we're up to, uh, April through June of 1991 WF. And what is remarkable about that, and the listeners need to understand this, is the only pay-per-view we will be mentioning in part two, will be WBF. Oh, God. <laughs> and, and very briefly, right? I mean, it's not yeah. like, I mean, that's going to just be like, a, it, it almost turns into a throwaway, even though we've kind of been building that up, uh, going back as far as the 1990 series. Um, it, you know, it's, we'll touch on the WBF pay-per-view in a little bit, but yeah, there is just a lot going on in the three months after WrestleMania seven here. Uh, I think this might be, the most fun section. There's a lot of in-ring stuff uh, to talk about, uh, in addition to two major stories outside the ring, one in a rival in the promotion, and uh, two uh, being the start of the decline of the company. <laughs> yeah, you can put it that, put it nicely. Um... <laughs> yeah, I guess I don't know any other way to put it. I mean, it's, yeah. there's no sugarcoating it. It's a That's bad time. It's a man in Titan Sports at the end of this uh, three-month period. It's, and it's not going to get any better after that either, by the way. But uh, oh. yeah, like you say, two big focuses that we're going to talk about here today. The first of which will be uh, the main event scene. Obviously, the big story about the that the main programs, Hulk Hogan and Sergeant Slaughter, continuing on after WrestleMania 7, uh, as well as the new program of The Ultimate Warrior and The Undertaker. But before we even get to that, there is one thing we're going to touch on first before we get into the full, uh, the full swing of things. A major event at the end of March we wanted to touch on. That being the WWF SWS WrestleFest 91 show in Tokyo, Kyle. Yeah, so this is not too significant in our overall narrative that we're going to be presenting today. But it is worth mentioning, Meltzer spends a decent amount of time covering it in The Observer. 
correct me if I'm wrong, he was live at the WCW New Japan show, but did not stay for this one. Yeah, didn't didn't bother sticking around for this one. He was there for the Flair Fujinami title change. Didn't didn't think so highly of uh, of of, of Tenryu and Hogan against the LOD. That's interesting that he wouldn't yeah. stay. I don't know. Maybe they jacked the hotel prices up or something. I don't know. Yeah, I just, it's like I, a week later. I, I kept going back and forth just to make sure I wasn't misreading. I was like, wait, okay, he went to one, not the other. But uh, you know, I mean, I guess. He, Dave probably figured he wasn't going to like the WWF SWS show that much anyway. And sure enough, it was viewed as inferior compared to the WCW New Japan Starcade show, as it was promoted as. Uh, that includes the famed uh, Steiners versus Hase and Chono match, a gateway match for many to New Japan. Yeah. I feel I, I think the importance of that match, this isn't the podcast to talk about this, but the importance of that tag team match cannot be understated as far as getting American fans to watch the Japanese product. Yeah, there's, there's a few of these, I feel, that, will, that kind of get dotted around a little bit. This is one that doesn't get the kind of... Uh, it gets it gets a lot of praise as a match, but I don't think it gets praise in terms of, like you say, the gateway element to it. There's a few, you know, Liger and, and, and Muta kind of had their role in this as well, but that's a, that's a key mm. one. Yeah, and, you know, I think we talked about this a little bit with the last show WF did in Japan after Mania 6, but, you know, Meltzer goes and talks about the quote, American style booking that they yeah. are still doing over Japan and how that doesn't really fit the audience. Um, they do do a pretty good number here. Now it's announced at 64 K, which is a lie. It, <laughs> it was approximately, it was approximately 42 K with 25 K paid. But Dave did bring up that it was a very different kind of audience than the previous year. Yeah, and it should be noted, they announced that it was that high because they wanted to break the indoor attendance record in Japan for, for sport and entertainment. And, and WCW show, the Starcade show, had previously broken the record the week before. So, of course, they're going to announce that the bigger number. There's a Rolling Stones concert that also held the uh, the entertainment record, and apparently the WF and SWS just packed them away here in Tokyo. 64,000 alleged fans in the building. Um, but... Like you say, different crowd. The American finishes thing is interesting to talk about because I watched this show back and man, this crowd does not like some of the WWF kind of gutless booking finishes that they do to try and you know, have no one do any jobs. The, the, the Tornado Perfect match is kind of a, a key for this because there is a terrible finish in that one where like, I think it's like Perfect accidentally brushes the referee over and then does the perfect plex on Tornado. The referee calls for a disqualification finish because of like an accidental brush and it's like, this is awful. <laughs> and Tornado like tries to get his heat back after the match, and Perfect's doing his act of like bumping all over the place, which works so well in the states, and they don't care. They're just looking at this like, what the fuck is this? This is a clown show. They just they got no time for it. Yeah, and while you know wrestling here in the states uh, was on the decline very much in the early '90s, it was set to explode over in Japan. And Meltzer yeah. makes the point that one of the big reasons that both New Japan and All Japan. Uh, got so hot in the early 90s was clean finishes. Yeah, getting away from That's the bullshit. What, what that audience was used to. Now, we should note WCW did the ultimate screw job finish at the end of that Starcade with Flair and Fujinami, which led to oh, the rematch yeah. at Super Brawl. Um, although they didn't announce it was a screw job live, <laughs> I remember. Yeah, it, it was just a thing for the States. Uh, WCW versus WWF. That, the promotional war is something we have spent a shocking little amount of time on during this 90 and 91 timeline. But it's definitely relevant for this podcast, not just because 
of what's going on over in Japan, the two competing shows, but also the battles over Sid Vicious and the battles over some buildings in various cities here in the U.S., namely St. Louis. Uh, we're going to talk about both of those things here today. Indeed we are. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very interesting kind of dynamic of the drift. Again, just the timing of it all. One week after WCW is going there. Again, screw finishes on both shows. The, 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 the Flair Fujinami one, not to detour too much, but that was one where a lot of the Japanese reporters, as Meltzer said at the time in his report, didn't actually cotton on to the fact that they were going to, they were going to fuck the fans pretty bad on that. And like, I think there's only like one, one of the reporters who kind of figured out like they're going to, they're going to break everybody's heart because everybody was so badly wanting Fujinami to win the NWA title meant so much in Japan. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> a screw job finish there too. I will note that Earthquake got a shockingly big reaction, although obviously with his, his sumo history, um, that was a big part of it, but he was like one of the biggest stars on the show. Okay. So Earthquake is someone we're not going to mention too much today, but in part 2B, for those keeping score at home, we'll be talking a lot about Earthquake. What a wild three months he has, including an event that happens over in Japan that must be heard to be believed. (laughs) That's a little teaser. We're not going to talk about that for a while again. That's going to come in part 2B, uh, but what a wild three months Earthquake has. He's just, he's doing everything, man. Yes, he's all over the joints. Uh, well, segue. Obviously, they did do a DQ in that main event that we talked about, Hogan and Tenry versus LOD. And <laughs> Has we'll... there ever been a match that screamed, no one's jobbing? <laughs> I'm actually disappointed that Tenry didn't, like, swerve Hogan and join his old uh, six-man tag team champion partners, LOD. Yeah. Oh, Bash of the Beach about a... 96 style. Yeah, you, I'll tell you what. You, you talk about something. Remember when we were joking about the clashes? <laughs> yeah. You and I, this is to get way off course. Uh oh, we're in trouble. But uh, and we we're talking about the history of the six man tag uh, titles of the NWA and Tenru of the Road Warriors at the end of '88. How that title reign came to be—that is just one of the most insane things ever. You know, a <laughs> Road Warrior Animal beating Dusty Rhodes by DQ in a singles match, and then they picked Janichiro Tenru to be their six man tag team champion. <laughs> it's completely out of left field. It's like this this individual just feels like he does not belong here in this mix. It's very bizarre. No, and they never even lose the titles. No, no, of course they but, don't. I don't know. Who knows? Making fun of late '88, early '89 NWA is for a different time, I suppose. It is. It is. We're going to veer back now to obviously, like we said, the two main uh, programs for 1991: Hogan and Slaughter, Wire and Taker. Uh, and a little addendum to the last show, so we talked about WrestleMania 7 not being a success on pay-per-view. However, uh, Meltzer writes here, if you caught last Friday's USA Today front page, you will have seen a photo of Hulk Hogan as one of the kings of pay-per-view. Uh, the story listed the most recent WrestleMania as grossing $22.9 million on pay-per-view, or roughly double the real amount. So, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> slight exaggeration. As we're going to find out, this is one of the last times Vince McMahon's going to get away with lying to the media. <laughs> and as far as kings of pay-per-view go, talk about that $22.9 million, uh figure being completely ludicrous and double the real amount. A few weeks later, April 18th, so this would have been less than a month after uh, Mania 7, a heavyweight championship fight in the boxing world, Evander Holyfield, George Foreman, grossed $75 million. So that, which was a monster number uh, in 1991 with inflation. That's like ridiculous. It's, yeah. It, uh, so yeah, that, that, that big time number 
uh, in the boxing world. So uh, Hulk Hogan, nowhere near uh, that league. Talk about a guy looking to get his photo printed in the same article. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, USA Today was they were always kind of a real kind media outlet to the WWF yeah. during this period. You know, they would just reprint anything Vince or Hogan told them. So yeah. uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, things would take a dramatic turn, as we're going to find out uh, in about three months. <laughs> Yeah, journalism will redeem itself uh, within due course here. Uh, The WWF opens its post-WrestleMania U.S. tour this past Saturday, this being the first week of April, with shows in Auburn Hills, Michigan, and Minneapolis, Minnesota, headlined by The Warrior vs. The Undertaker and Hogan vs. Slaughter, respectively. Warrior and and The Undertaker drew 5,200, which isn't spectacular, but certainly respectable. The interesting thing about this match is that the crowd is decidedly pro-Undertaker, Meltzer says. Uh, the WF officials expressed concern to me before WrestleMania that Undertaker wasn't going over the way they had planned and wanted. Hogan and Slaughter, meanwhile, drew 8,600 paid in Minneapolis, a great crowd for the market, but not necessarily for Hogan. Uh, so an interesting little bit there. That's kind of the baseline. That's the starting point here. Right after WrestleMania, before anything's happened on television, uh appears to be that Hogan and Slaughter is drawing a little bit better to start with, but obviously we're going to get into. Yeah, and Hogan and Slaughter, you would figure they'd do well in Minneapolis, given their history in the AWA. Uh, I want to focus on the, quote, concern with Undertaker. What was that, that he was getting cheered? Yes, I believe so. Okay, so do we think he should have turned face sooner than he did? Which isn't for another year. Hmm. That's tough, man. The entire balance kind of relies on Taker at the minute when you look at, at, the, at the TV post-mania. Yes, and I think a very important point to be made here is had you turned The Undertaker during this time, the heel side would have been very dire. <laughs> and, which is kind of an ongoing theme, and I'm going to bring it up a couple times uh, here today. You know, the fact that, you know, if you've got Hogan Warrior doing this 1A, 1B thing we've been talking about forever, you need two strong heels, and that's been an issue. Yeah. Um, so if we kind of play with the face-heel alignment around this period, so I'm going to do some what else. If The Undertaker is a baby face, I think the only way that works is if you would have turned the Warrior heel for the Mania main event. Yeah, I, I agree. As I was kind of trying to weigh up the what-ifs of, of, of this alignment, if if you turn Taker, you got Hogan, Warrior, a newly turned Savage, Jake, a newly turned Taker. Savage obviously isn't wrestling at this point. Uh, but then you've only got like Slaughter and Quake on the other side, so you need a, a, a hot, hot top heel because those two guys have been pretty much burned through. So you got nothing without Taker. So yeah, the, and the only one out of that really that feels like they're ready to be a big deal as a heel would have been the Warrior, but of course they didn't go that direction. Correct. So I I get what they're thinking because. You know, WWF was the one promotion throughout the 80s uh, in the early 90s, and certainly there's some exceptions to this, that heels weren't really cheered. Yeah. It, it was, you know, it, it, the crowd cheered the baby faces, they booed the heels. It was not, you know, known as the smart crowd territory. I'm no, not trying no, to we... cast aspersions on anybody. I grew up watching it, okay, love the product, <laughs> know it inside and out. But it's not some, you know... The fans rebelling against baby faces, it was very few and far between. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very notable when it happens, such as, as we talked about, the power and glory squash of the Rockets at SummerSlam 1990. These things were few and far between in the Federation. Yeah, I mean, heels getting cheered, it, it just, Savage, you got it in like 86, 87. Yeah. 
I mean, he was just so undeniable, though. I guess that's not a surprise at all, looking back in retrospect. And Taker, obviously, was very cool. So mm. it's not a huge shock. But I don't think they should have turned him heel. And I think it was fine. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm actually kind of happy or they stayed the course and reaction. I, I apologize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turning baby face obviously would have been very reactionary. And, and as it turns out, I think it would have been a big mistake. There was a time and a place. But uh, but again, we'll come back to this because there is something I want to touch on later with The Undertaker uh, and his kind of his position. It should be said, obviously, after WrestleMania, they shoot a few big angles in a row here. We're going to get to them individually. Um, the WWF house gates were actually pretty good over the past quarter, says Meltzer. Yet the post-WrestleMania booking at TV reeks of desperation and can't figure out why. They ran through hardcore angles all at the same time, reminiscent of a booker just hoping something will work rather than having a plan and concentrating on the big issue. They did a fireball angle on Hulk Hogan, undertaking his angle with Ultimate Warrior on the funeral parlor, uh, and obviously we'll talk about those uh, in a bit more detail shortly, but I know there's a point about that kind of sense of desperation that you want to touch on here. Yes, do we agree with Dave that the TV seemed quote desperate it feels like it's 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 tough it feels like a bit of a reactionary comment due to the fact that 1990 was so slow that they actually decided to run with a couple of big angles at once and i mean they ran as we'll get to three or four pretty big angles in short succession succession here that were as big as any four that happened in the entire year in 1990 you can probably come up with like one or two that happened in 1990 that kind of feel like they're in the ballpark. And here it feels like it, it is a hot shot type of feeling because it's all happening at once. But whether it actually is really too many angles at once or whether, like we said, 1990 was just too damn slow, I guess we'll see as this plays out. Okay, lot to unpack here. Yeah. I agree with basically everything you just said. With 1990, after WrestleMania, the period before SummerSlam, really the only big angle they run is Hogan Quake. Yeah. And that's, of course, made to be the biggest thing, and it draws very well at SummerSlam when the time comes for when they need it to draw well. It does. It's the reason that that show did well on pay-per-view. They run a lot more angles here, as you said. None of them, I don't think, are as big as Hogan and Quake, although one is very reminiscent of it. We're going to talk about that again in a few minutes. As far as Dave calling the TV desperate, I do think it's really interesting to have some context. One, like you said, compared to 1990, where just nothing was going on for most of the year. So I, in that sense, compared to 90, I enjoyed this. It, yeah. You know, it, it, at least at first, like in April, like the TV just felt like, you know, they did the fireball, the the casket angle, some other stuff, but it didn't feel too jammed together. I kind of felt that everything was being given its proper time to breathe, so to speak. Yeah, I, I can't really disagree with that. I think that where it comes... Okay, so uh, we're, we're obviously going to breach ahead with this, but April, I wouldn't really change much about what they did in April. May and June, possibly, when it comes to the follow-up. But again, that's something we're going to get to in time. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, the May and June stuff, it's lesser angles. I mean, April was very much about starting these two programs we're going to talk about in detail today and really get into here in a moment. But I have a question as well. Why do you think WWF turned more and more to these types of, quote-unquote, hardcore angles? Was it a ratings deal? Uh, Because the bottom line is they continue throughout 91 
most notably Savage and Roberts at the end of the year. Yeah, this is this is interesting. I to me, the way that I read this, you look at the timing, is that it is the reaction to the failed Mania buy rate that we talked about, the the, the, the massive you know shortfall of that show that they, they expected it would be like the biggest WrestleMania of all time ended up being the least. The, the smallest WrestleMania of all time, I suppose, up to this point. We, we talked about the 2.7 buy rate it did on the last show. Uh, and and I, that feels to me like what it is. It was like, okay, so we've underperformed on our big stage. We've got a lot of negative press. So we're going to need to turn things around. And we're going to actually need to do stuff that's going to get people out to the houses. And it wasn't something where they just felt like they could go through the motions. They've been through that in 1990. They kind of had gone through the motions and they paid the price for it. Here, it felt like, okay... It's, it's reactionary. Again, it is that thing of like, I'm not, and again, whether it's desperation or whether it's just that sense of, okay, we, we really need to turn this thing around because it, it's, it's too slow, it's too dull. What we're doing is not clicking with people and we need to get them back. And their feeling was to go pretty extreme on some of this stuff. Um, so to me, it feels like it's a direct response to like one of their biggest failures up to this point. Quick question. Another one for you. Uh, not sure I would have said this 15 years ago. But I think that just watching this TV, I was jarred by how much better and easier a watch it was than 2020 yeah. WWE. <laughs> I don't know if you'd agree, but I just, you know, people get mad when you bring that up. But man, and I come off cross as some old geezer, but man, you know, I think that's why, you know, I read Dave, how he's talking about it. Again, context is key. He's talking about this in 1991. The, the words we are reading are Dave Meltzer, 1991. When Kyle or Liam in 2020 is watching this, I'm like, God, I would kill for this television. Just one-hour shows, they do one big angle of show, they hit on it, they reinforce it, and you keep going. It feels like the promotion's progressing rather than going in circles like it is today. Yeah, I, that, I mean, one of the big things that I that stands out is the sense of hierarchy in the promotion that is completely lost now. And I know that we've talked about this in the past on, on the show, but it's one of those where I look at how today everything feels like it's going round and round in circles because so many people have done so much and none of it really feels like it's meant anything. Whereas here, and this is something we'll get to, when they do something, it feels that they give it the narrative, whether it's a success or not, they usually do a hell of a job of making you feel like you've seen an important shift in the evolution of the WWF when something happens like what we're going to talk about. Even if it, even if it doesn't really resonate in the end, at least they try, you know, the sort of thing, mm-hmm. the, commentators, the commentators pushed it like it was a really, really heavy angle because they wanted to get that emotion out of people. So when, yeah, when, they, when they make a shift, it feels like it matters. And that's, that is one of the big advantages this has. And it's, it's just, again, because it's an easier watch and there is less, there, there are less holes, you know. Now, now there's that thing, like you said before, about how you kind of feel like you kind of have to, we could go off in the whole tirade about some of the stuff that's been happening in the last couple of weeks, talking about Survivor Series and stuff where it's like this, just what, yeah, why the fuck did Randy want to beat Drew McIntyre in the end then? <laughs> anyway, but you know, yeah, stuff no, like it's that like, where it's like, it really, it really doesn't a, matter. If you went to a two week coma or whatever, or a three week coma, you would have no idea and it wouldn't matter. Honestly, yeah. I mean, I mean, I would feel bad that you were in a three week coma, but you know, <laughs> I mean, in terms of your wrestling fandom, it didn't really matter. Exactly. Exactly. Even though don't, don't a world title change happened. <laughs> Yeah, a world title. Yeah, the, 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 supposedly the single most important thing in the history of the, uh, in, in the promotion that they can do didn't really matter. Didn't make a difference. And and yeah, anyway, that, that's another conversation for another day too. But again, it kind of 
it ties back to this where you can watch this and everything feels like for the most part it's in its proper place and everything that happens is given its proper focus you talk about the the proper time to breathe i agree i think that you know 1990 was nothing but breathing you know 1991 they're actually doing something and it feels like again the follow-up's nice and we'll talk about that um after wrestlemania the first big angle that we're going to talk about here actually this is directly after the match they 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 filmed this hogan coming back uh, in the locker room uh, and as he's talking to Gene Oakland, he opens a door and Sergeant Slaughter's on the other side and throws a fireball at Hulk Hogan. Um, Gene Oakland mentions in the, uh, in the kind of the recap segment talking about this, that Hulk Hogan had been raped, which was not shown. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I think Gene may need to work on his definition of rape. Yeah. <laughs> I like how Dave Meltzer here in the notes does put the boot in here saying Hogan sold the thing well, but the fireball missed. Yes, oh, what a Dave line that is. Uh, okay. By the way, by the, by the way, that UDF angle with Russia, that didn't draw. <laughs> what a what a Debbie Downer. Uh, <laughs> I love we it. should point out that Gene bumped. Did we explain that reference, by the way, in the last I think we Yeah, did. yeah, we okay. did. All right, okay, just in case if people are confused, like, what the hell are you talking about, fireballs and UWF? <laughs> so it should be pointed out, mean Gene bumped too. <laughs> yes, he did. He, he he took a dive. Very rare to see Gene Okerlund fall. Uh, no word uh, on whether or not he was raped as well, by the way. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, as we're going to come to find out, the WWF's definition of rape is uh, a lot different than the legal definition. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, wow. I mean, a lot of, this is not the last time they would use the term raped on their television uh, in April and May, and uh, both times it was not used correctly. No, uh, Vin, Vin seems to like this word a lot. He's used it a, a few times, and uh, so and so has been raped of their dignity. That's a, that's a Vince line that he loves to use. What? Yeah, when was the first time they used that? Uh, I, I I remember they did it in like nine. They probably did it before this, but I remember they did it like '97 when Goldust dumps Marlena. Oh my god, did they? I don't remember. No, there was like yeah. an old Hogan angle. Where? No, no, it was uh, Andre the Giant when he got his hair cut. That's right, that's right. That's, that's right, right. He, he, he'd been raped of his dignity. That's right. That, that's when they did it. Okay. I, I, it was going to bother me. I'm glad it, it came to me. <laughs> so, back to the uh, issue at hand. It's Sergeant Slaughter throwing a fireball at Hulk Hogan right after WrestleMania 7. You said it. This was kind of unique in the sense that it took place backstage after a pay-per-view but it was obviously not on the pay-per-view proper it was something they immediately let off with on the television the week after mania yeah so i think this might have been the first time they've done something like this it's pretty rare to do that and it would not be the last time in 91 obviously they do a much more famous one after SummerSlam. yeah and and this is really all about trying to trying to uh, kind of put some steam behind Hogan and Slaughter. And in the aftermath, they don't really do a great deal after this. They kind of treat it like a heavy angle at first, and then you get like some interview sentence with Hogan and Vince in the gym, like trying to sell this uh, with Hogan with the, with the, you know, the little bandaid on his face, talking about how now guerrilla, our uh, Sergeant Slaughter is now engaging in guerrilla warfare and how he's, he's, he's got to go to the next level, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, the war deal is not over. Uh, no, no, the war is still not over, everyone. Yeah, although the, the Persian Gulf War was very brief at, in actual time, but the WWF was looking to stretch that 
sucker out as long as it could go. Uh, again, <laughs> flies in the face of some things you hear on certain podcasts about yeah, it. Yeah, they wanted to milk this for all it was worth. And to your earlier point about you know being reactionary to the low buy rate of Mania Seven, this Fireball definitely fit that bill because I think uh, we talked about this last time where it's almost inconceivable they'd continue this Hogan-Slaughter feud. Slaughter is such an awful champion. He loses the title. Even if you're someone who's advocating you continue this feud, I think you're looking at the situation like, okay, we've got to do something big. Because how in the hell are people going to take Slaughter seriously if he's lost the title and they didn't really respect him as the champion anyway? Yeah. And we outright said going into the pay-per-view that he's a massive underdog to beat Hogan. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, there you go. So they had to do something. Uh, This was unique, the way they did it, the fact it was a fireball. So it's something. Absolutely. We've got got something going forward, and we're going to see how this plays out. Meanwhile, also on television, the Warrior Undertaker angle that was taped plays on television. Uh, The one thing Titan does, says Meltzer, is that when they hit a big angle, they play it up like it's a big angle. Uh, Our own feeling is that if the angle were to be played so strongly, they should at least have kept Warrior out of action for a little while, like they did last year with Hogan in a similar angle. Of course, the angle being... Hulk Hogan, sorry, the Ultimate Warrior gets locked in a casket on the funeral parlor, which is Paul Bearer's talk show that, that's, that's kicked off uh, in the wake of Brother Love's demise. And he gets locked in the coffin, and they are freaking out on commentary about him suffocating, about him getting nowhere. They're smashing it with hammers. They're trying to pry it open with a crowbar. Finally, they try and, I see something, they're drilling it. They finally open it up, and Warrior is... Not looking good. I think they try to do CPR on him, and they're really kind of teasing that he's like at near death because of this uh, this uh, attempted suffocation, apparently, of the warrior. So pretty heavy stuff. Uh, but again, they did play this up like this was a huge deal. Yeah, they did. And the inside of the casket's all torn up, you know, yeah. kind of trying to sell that warrior was trying to fight his way out. So I totally agree with Meltzer's remark about Titan, and I love when we get to call him Titan. Uh, <laughs> their strength when it comes to playing up big angles, because when something like this happened back then, they kind of took a pause. And yeah, there'd be a squash match right after, but they were very much talking about what we just saw. And this is fascinating when compared to today, because, you know, I I think it was maybe Nitro that put a bad taste in people's mouth, the idea of talking about the stuff higher up on the card during undercard matches. Yeah. Right? Like, what those was, oh, my God, the, Tony's talking about the NWO when there's a cruiserweight match in the ring. Like, that was of a course. common complaint you'd read yes, online yeah. 20 years ago or maybe even a little longer at this point. But I, I get why some people complain, and obviously there wasn't enough focus. We got to a point where the NWO overwhelmed that promotion. But... I feel now in 2020, we've gotten to a place where it's almost we're 180 degrees different. We don't play up the big angles enough. We actually need to talk about uh, the NWO during the cruiserweight match, whatever the modern equivalent is more today. Yeah. Because it's about retribution for Christ's sake. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it just I, I think, you know, that was a strength. If you want something to be big, you've got to play it up as big. You just don't stop talking about it when the segment's over. And so they did a very good job with this. Now, you mentioned the angle itself where you're locked in the casket. It is very memorable to fans of my age, I feel. If you, if I were to, like, pull Family Feud style, like, doing that, like, 
you know, name five wrestling angles that you remember. Like in my friend group, I think this would rank high. Yeah. I, I think like a lot of people who are now like early 40s remember this very well. As far as the hardcore quote unquote angles that take place during this specific period, uh, we should also mention Jake Roberts and Earthquake briefly here, what they do with Earthquake splashing Damien. Yeah. This was clearly the best one. And uh, the by, numbers. By yeah, the numbers, as we're going to get to, seem to bear that out. But even be, and the numbers really took me by surprise, believe it or not. I, I, I was either forgotten or not aware or just whatever. I just, I, but I remembered at the time when I'm a 10 year old kid watching this really being into this angle. So it's, you know, I think it's kind of like from both a modern uh, sense and, you know, from my childhood, it was a big deal. It worked. Uh, as far as we're not taking any time off, I assume that I can only assume that WWF remembered the house show decline of the previous year post mania and didn't want to repeat that by taking warrior off the road, even if it means no selling the angle a bit. Yeah. That, 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 may, I mean, again, at least they're learning the lesson, you know, well, I, I guess that the equivalent would be, I mean, cause even then like earthquake and Hogan, we talked about, that was like May. it feels like when that angle ran. Yeah, it was May. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it wasn't like they went straight to that either. So they are wasting no time here in, in, in doing some heavy stuff. And again, I agree completely. This is it's the best of these angles at the start of this period of time. So, so, it's so well done and so memorable and did so much for Taker. It did. And, you know, we should point out, except for this big band-aid he wears for a few weeks, Hogan didn't really sell the fireball that much either. No. After the initial angle. So, like, I mean, he they could have done, like, a scarring with his face. I mean, because we talked about kind of the difference between the Warrior and Hogan characters. Warrior is not someone you would expect to see doing, like, this massive sell job. Yeah. Because he, he doesn't have that. He's less human than Hogan. Mm-hmm. It's always felt that way. Uh, and comparing this Warrior Taker angle to Hogan Quake from the previous year, a big theme for me moving forward, by the way. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, like I said, I was going to make the lack of response. It's funny because, like, when we get to the point where Hogan, as we say, they shoot the big angle and then they talk about it. But it felt like they, you know, Hogan's wearing the Band-Aid at Saturday Night's main event, um, which airs at the end of April. But beyond that, they, there's not really a ton of focus on that actually happening. It's kind of a, yeah, it happened, and now... Again, it's kind of it's it, comparing the two where the warrior is doing promos in that soft voice, talking about his experience for, for a, a few weeks after this. Comparing it to Hogan doing the initial, you know, chatting on the bench with Vince between in between your know, bench presses, it didn't really, it didn't, it didn't resonate nearly as well. Um, and and yeah, I, I like the way that this plays out. We talked about Saturday Night's main event. It was taped April fifteenth. We're going to segue to this now. Airs on a, on the twenty seventh. The main event of this show, or what goes last, we should say, not necessarily the main event, Mr. Perfect, doing out Greg Valentine, uh, top babyface apparently, Greg Valentine, <laughs> to win a 20-man battle royal. In that match, Hulk Hogan, who's in the battle royal, Slaughter is not, we'll talk about what Slaughter gets up to uh, later, um, he's eliminated by Tugboat, he's the WF champion, of course, eliminated by Tugboat, 
which may be leading to a turn. Uh, we'll have to see how they play it on television. Meltzer says, just what the world was waiting for, a Hogan tugboat feud, which I had to, I had to chuckle after last week's uh, proposed WrestleMania 7 angle. That was almost like Meltzer had gone back in time to kind of to, to fuck, with, fuck with that idea a little bit. Yeah, just really rip on me. Hey, <laughs> I mean, look, it wasn't good, but it would have been better than Hogan Slaughter, and I'll stand by that remark, okay? <laughs> I think Fred Ottman would have been a better WrestleMania co-headliner than Bob Remus. <laughs> speaking of he's in there at the start of the show which is usually where they put the, the thing that they consider most important against the ultimate warrior uh the match is just kind of there it's really all about what happens afterwards warrior is getting uh, distracted by the undertaker who comes out to ringside in the casket uh gets wheeled down by bear they open up he's distracted uh the warrior is and then there's an ambush by sergeant slaughter's crack staff of general adnan and colonel mustafa who we'll talk about in a little bit um, Hogan comes out to save his little buddy, the warrior, which is always a nice thing to see Hogan do. Um, but as, take, as, as Hogan's running wild, he hits the Undertaker with the title belt and it gets completely no sold by Taker. They played it big. Uh, Hogan then sees this and decides to chase off Colonel Mustafa and General Adnan, a real act of courage, uh, from Terry. Leaves the warrior with the terrifying, uh, symbol of death. Taker then no-sells Warrior's clotheslines uh, one after another before finally, after a tackle, lands on his feet going over the top rope uh, and the officials arrive to kind of separate the two. This was good stuff. This, this has been a great month for Taker to help make him because not only, obviously, the no-selling of, of Hogan and the belt shot, but the whole thing of the, the Warrior angle and then this, they are making him like such a monster and it's always good to see when they do something, because, oh, you know, we, you know he, he'd been doing this since he came in the company. It wasn't new, but it's always a thing. And it's kind of a similar thing to Goldberg when Goldberg got really hot. When it's like, OK, he's doing this to the scrubs. But when he starts doing the same thing to the top guys, it really feels like a big deal. And this really did feel like a huge deal. Yeah. And it's why you don't put him in that like a higher position at WrestleMania, because yes. now you've got months and months for him to be this hot heel rather than just like, you know, killing him off. At Mania to, to you know Hogan or were we ran through all those potential scenarios. Uh, the no selling of the belt shot, Hogan's shock reaction, little reminiscent of Zeus two years prior. Mm. I thought you know it wasn't quite like that, but you know that was a big angle they did on a Saturday Night Event. Uh, I think the no selling of the belt shot kind of seemed to be a tease for down the line. Of course, Hogan and Undertaker would be the main event of Survivor Series in November. Uh, as for the rest of the Saturday Night's main event. Headlining with a battle royal seems pretty weak. Yeah. Although it was a battle royal, we should point out, that headlined the most watched Saturday night's main event in history, March of 87. Of course, that one takes place in the shadow of Andre the Giant's turn on Hulk Hogan, a much uh, different time in the promotion. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, there did seem to be some potential for this battle royal, I thought. Jake and Earthquake uh, was the only program really spotlighted, though, and they, they didn't do much. Uh, as far as tugboat dumping Hogan, didn't really go anywhere between those two, but it did foreshadow tugboat's heel turn, I guess. And did you have something there? No, yeah, I was just gonna say, I, I, I watching this back, I just it feels so bizarre. They kind of do like a little bit of a conflict in the ring. That they, they, they do fight against each other at one point and exchange eye rakes, which no one sells. Oh my and, god, that was so <laughs> ridiculous. That's, it's like. It's supposed to be, hey, it's these two baby-faced buddies going at it. What do they do? They just rake each other's eyes like three times each. <laughs> no that selling. was a dreadful segment. It was hideous. Hogan gets dumped. 
And then Tugboat gets eliminated immediately afterwards by Shawn Michaels, of all people. Which, I don't even know if they even... They, Shawn Michaels is barely in the camera shot when it happens. Um, but they mention that Shawn eliminates Tugboat immediately. They do like a little stare down on the floor. And then kind of move on with their lives. And again, it is that thing of... The focus of, of Hogan's big angle with Slaughter doesn't really feel like it has a lot of punch on this show. It feel, this Again, this just kind of splits the focus on what's going on with Tugboat and Hogan. It turns out to be nothing. But yeah, there you go. Yeah, as far as the Battle Royal goes, one last thing on it. The closing stretch, I thought, was quite good with Perfect and Michaels and Perfect and Valentine. I know we make fun of Greg Valentine as a babyface a lot on this show. Uh, this may have been his height as a babyface. There were honest listeners. There were honest to God chance of hammer. Uh, as he was in the final two with Perfect. Of course he fails. <laughs> yes, so uh, the Perfect Michaels uh, interplay was great. Oh, yeah. Y- you can really see that, you know, there was something in Sean as a single there. And, you know, very odd, similar to Survivor Series 90. He's in there a lot longer than Marty. Yeah, curious that, huh? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know if there were some people within the company who were already keen as Sean as the better single potentially. Um, We've always heard that, you know, there was debate over that. It it wasn't like this foregone conclusion from the start. Oh, well, you know, we got to get through the Rockers because Shawn Michaels can be this great single. They were considered very much equals uh, for the majority of the history of the team. But uh, it's interesting if that had been changing uh, in some people's eyes around this point. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Um, Also on the show, we should mention in passing, uh, Brett and DiBiase do a double count out and Santana, our boy Tito Santana has a match with the Mountie and puts him over as well. Um, doesn't really kind of... Re- I will say, actually, that Battle Royal, as soon as, like, Hogan's gone, it's pretty slim pickings on who's left. It's like Hammer, Haku, Barbarian. Bossman's in there still, but he gets canned by Perfect. And Perfect wins the end. Perfect's the star of that match. He takes a bump off a chop from, from Valentine near the end. It's just awesome. Yes. I also like at the start of the match, he sneaks out and just, like, hugs the ring post on the outside <laughs> and not talked about it all by the announcer. It's completely missed. I'd seen this match a couple times before and that was the first time I'd ever noticed it. Yeah. He, him, him and Heenan are pretty great. Heenan's on the floor biting the towel as it's getting close at the uh, near the finish. It's, it's good stuff. Uh, the show itself draws a 7.7 rating and a 19 share. Uh, in that time slot, the rating is a whole lot better than the February uh, primetime main event, which is 6.7. We talked about that on the last show. But it also shows that the WWF is no longer as hot an item on NBC as it once was, says Dave. Yeah, so overall, I still thought, despite the fact the Battle Royal was okay at the close, uh, Brett and DiBiase have a, one of the better Saturday Night's Main Event matches in history. It's a weak Saturday Night's Main Event, even with the Warrior ta- even with the Warrior Taker. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Hard to explain, but did this show feel more taped? I don't know if that's a thing, but I, I explain. <laughs> like the phony locker room, the commentary track was kind of laid weird. It was just like, you know, sometimes if you don't, you know, have that trained ear, you know, if you're a kid, uh, you don't know that it's taped, right? The show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. This just felt very taped. This show, it just felt like you could tell the announcers were announcing at the time. It, I, I don't know. It just, it felt just, like I said, for lack of a term, more taped. Yeah, a very kind of overproduced feel. The commentary audio was way stronger than the crowd noise, that kind of a thing. Um, 
there actually is a point in the Battle Royal where like Paul Roma gets eliminated first and then pulls Janetti out. And they're fighting on the floor. They get separated. Then the camera cuts to the hard camera and they are just vanished from the face of the earth. Another thing, actually, the July 1990 Satellites Made event kind of shared that overproduced feeling, I thought. We talked about that one. Uh, the, the one with the Warrior Rude match. That kind of had a, a similar thing where the, the audio was, again, a little bit funky. But I, I, I will say that I really did miss Jesse Ventura on this show, uh, the Satellite's main events. He was he would be great uh, kind of dealing with like the big angles and stuff. And to not have him there was was notable here on the show, I thought. With Savage now, we should mention, as a, a, a heel color commentator with Vince. Yeah, and he was still kind of finding his footing. I don't know if he ever found it, quite frankly, but, uh, <laughs> you know, this is a couple weeks into the gig, and you're right. That's another thing uh, I think that hurt the show is the announcing, and Roddy Piper pops in for a little bit. Um, we could talk, we'll talk about that team later on. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I just thought that this was not a big-time feel, even if some of the wrestling was good and they did a good job with the taker. Also, a little tidbit here. This was confirmed by the history of WWF.com website. This was supposed to be a main event on a Friday night. Mm. Uh, if you look at the banners, it's they're all the main event. Yeah, Gene's mic backstage on the interviews, main event. Yeah, so that would have been similar then to the episode we talked about from the previous November in our 1990 timeline, yeah. when it would just been an hour show. And interesting, Meltzer, he doesn't know any of that. But he does note that NBC may have pushed, quote-unquote, for the addition of Warrior Slaughter to the card. Wanting something bigger, wanting those ratings up, especially after, like we said, that 6.7. Yeah, and and, February. and and we'll give, um, at least I know I'm going to give, some big-picture thoughts on Saturday's main event uh, here in a little bit because, uh, well, it'd be a pretty good time to do that. Yes. Uh, to the detour quite quickly, there is one thing that happens here uh in the interim before we get into May, it's actually kind of worth noting the World Wrestling Federation returned this past week from probably its most successful overseas tour in history, a nine-event WWF UK Rampage tour. Uh, the first eight events of the tour were sold out back in January. They added a ninth, uh, which is like a matinee show in the afternoon. Uh, according to several readers who have taken vacations in England over the past year, the WWF, which is on the Sky Channel in Europe, is more popular in that country than it is in its home country. Uh, Andre worked the WWF uh, UK tour and the UK Rampage uh, 91 show, which is the most notable event that people probably remember. A six-man with him and the Rockers against Mr. Fuji in the Orient Express. Uh, Meltzer also <laughs> knows that... I know. <laughs> Boy, does that sound like a bomb burner. Um, Dynamite Kid was uh, also apparently at one or two of these shows. A second for Davey Boy Smith, mm. which I couldn't find much on. I thought they'd already fallen out by this point. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, this is some good news during a period of mostly bad news for the company. Uh, the UK and Europe in general would be the promotion's hotbed during this down period for domestic business in the early through mid-90s. Uh, you, as luck would have it, live in the UK. <laughs> That's true. Yes, that's very true. Uh, you know, I've said it before. I believe England's second best author behind Shakespeare. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes. So your personal thoughts on the WF's ascent in the early mid-90s in your country. So Sky was a big part of this. Sky is is like our big cable package that we have over here in, in England uh, and in the UK in general. And it felt like there was a great deal of prestige to the WF being on Sky. Um, there was a very big awareness of what the WF was, but it felt to me like the fandom of wrestling was very contained in pockets at this point of time because 
not a lot of people had Sky compared to how many would have Sky in the late 90s and now, especially. So it was kind of like a thing that everybody was aware of, but not that many people were following the TV weekly and being reactive to it the way that we would be later. Um, but even, I mean, it's, it's, it's everywhere. People know what it is. Um, come 1992, everybody was aware that the British Bulldog was going to wrestle Bret Hart for the title at Wembley. So it ends up being a big deal. And I think that, I mean, this, this period of time when the WF hits Sky, there's a, there's an awful lot of people who become fans here that are still fans today and kind of are a big part of this kind of current era of traveling WrestleMania fans, um, that we're in now in 2000 and you know, the 2010s. But, uh, yeah, it, it was it was a big deal. It wasn't like it was like the biggest thing. Like I do feel like it was more popular in the late nineties, but this was the first time. Because the thing is too, WCW actually had a better time slot when it came to television in this country than than the WWF did. Uh, WCW wow. was on ITV, which is like a network station, on Saturday afternoons at like three or four o'clock, following the A Team. So like it was, they had a better they had a better TV slot but no one ever seemed to talk about wcw compared to the wwf so uh yeah it was it was it was hot it was hot and uh i can certainly see why people may have traveled over here and, and because we, it was really the first we were getting of it in a big way um obviously we, we'd had we gotten wf before this but it just felt like this was a period of time where a lot of people were, were made fans especially because this was the period when i was in school so i remember seeing this is the period when i first became aware of it of Russia was 1991, Hulk Hogan, Sergeant Slaughter. It's not Barry that lead. No, no, Savage and Warrior. This was the point where I became aware of what the WWF was. Um, so and I'm sure there are a lot of people that, that kind of fit that bill as well. But uh, speaking yeah. Of, speaking of travel, I find it fascinating that multiple Wrestling Observer newsletter readers in 1991 had taken vacations in England over the previous year. Yeah, in jolly old England. I, I don't know. What, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not casting aspersions your country. I just find that fascinating. <laughs> That multiple Wrestling Observer newsletter readers, you know, that were, were there, there were a lot of people going to England in 1991, but I, I find it fascinating that there we're were <laughs> a lot of people that were reading Dave Meltzer doing it. A hotbed for the, uh, the, the newsletter readers, apparently. But uh, yeah, so anyway, moving back to America, uh, the May 4th card in Los Angeles back at the sports arena drew 15,000 fans. Uh, for an Ultimate Warrior and Undertaker headliner, $193,000 at the gate. That gate is way off the normal chart, says Meltzer. I believe it's the largest house ever in Los Angeles without Hulk Hogan, certainly the largest non-Hogan house in years. Also, he adds, the tradition is that after WrestleMania, the city usually doesn't draw again for at least four to six months. Yet, this was the largest house since WrestleMania anywhere and without Hogan in the same city. I believe the actual paid attendance was probably more than WrestleMania was, since Mania had so many comps. Uh, although Warrior Undertaker isn't drawing houses anywhere close to this anywhere else at this point, it is doing solid to very good B-show business, which actually says the world for The Undertaker, since Warrior hasn't been that kind of a draw with anyone else. Uh, actually, Hogan and Slaughter, says Meltzer, is only doing average to slightly above average A-show business, but can't recall any sellouts yet in a big building. Uh, this continues the following week at the Nassau Coliseum, a headline by Warrior and Undertaker, drawing nearly 14,000 people paid, a gate in excess of 200 grand, which makes it the largest house show gate besides WrestleMania in North America for several months. Uh, Warrior and Undertaker, that second month, seems to have surpassed Hogan and Slaughter as the top angle because it's drawing the better houses, says Meltzer. Although Hogan and Slaughter did draw almost 11,000 people on June 16th at the LA Sports Arena, 
several thousand less than Warrior and Hogan, sorry, Warrior and Undertaker did in the same building. Wow, the irony here. Yes. So you've got Warrior, no longer the WWF champion, getting programmed with the new hot heel, as we've beaten you over the head with, after WrestleMania, and it is working a year too late. <laughs> we, you know, uh, second year in a row that the newly crowned WWF champion takes a backseat to a hotter program. For those who didn't get a chance to listen to 1990 or may have already forgotten, uh, Warrior Rude could not even compare to Hogan Earthquake after WrestleMania six. No. It feels like this is a little closer, but I think it's fascinating that the program that is not for the WWF title once again is the big drawing program, and it's even more fascinating that it's allegedly failed WWF champion Ultimate Warrior involved. Ah, lovely. (laughs) Right? I mean, isn't it like... We're going to talk about this, have a big picture talk on the Warrior here in a little bit later. It's scheduled in the notes. But for 1990, we talked about Hogan's character work outshining the Warrior Postmania. But does this simply boil down to who has the fresher heel to work with? It feels that way. Um, I, I mean, to be honest, as we'll get to here, Warrior's numbers on there's a lot in Warrior's favor here that actually goes his way, and the blight of how his title reign was treated may be kind of an anomaly in the in the bigger picture of things, but I, whether it's down to who the fresher heel is, whoever has the fresher, hotter heel is always going to feel like the top babyface. Just naturally. Yeah, and it happens both times after WrestleMania. It just mm-hmm. happens to not be the WWF champion either time. Uh, we should maybe give credit to Undertaker. Dave certainly did in the what you read there. Um, You know, we talked about what exactly Earthquake's value was above any other heel. We went into the concept of, you know, war, a baseball uh, stat uh, for him. You know, what what would Hogan have done against another big man? You know, what Mm. did Earthquake specifically bring to the table that feud? I think it's fair to say the Undertaker brought more to this warrior feud than Quake did to the Hogan feud. Yeah, absolutely. Quake could have been anyone. Not to disparage him, because I think he did a good job in his role in a way, but that was really about Hogan. It was the sympathy with Hogan, the injury, the the, the Get Well Hulk campaign, all that stuff, and it could have been anybody in that role. Whereas this, it needs to be taken. Yeah, because it's a, a casket angle. It was very unique to his mm. gimmick. It was something like, oh, you would never have seen this pre-Undertaker. The Undertaker was not a part of the WWF, this angle would not be happening. Yeah. Uh, so, last question here before we move on. Is the problem with 1990 and 91 WWF, you know, these 18 months we've talked about so far, or whatever, 15, 18, whatever it is, that they just never had two heels that were simultaneously hot? Yeah, I think so. We talked about this dynamic on the previous series. Uh, the, have, the, the idea of having a promotion with one top babyface means you can feed them the one big heel, and that one big heel can kind of run roughshod over the company in order to get ready for that top babyface. With two top babyfaces, you need two huge threats at the same time. Kind of a tougher thing to pull off because it doesn't work as organically. You've got two guys who are the, the biggest threat in the promotion simultaneously. Like, it doesn't really... 
it, it's hard to do. There's going to be a natural lead. There's going to be one that does better than the other. And it's it's just kind of humorous, I suppose. That in both cases, it was the guy who didn't have the championship. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, as we're going to find out here, do you, it seems like the houses here in 91 are a improvement over what we were talking about the previous year. Oh, yeah, big time. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's working. Ba- I mean, well, Hogan was taking off the house shows to sell the injury and because he, yeah. he was making a movie. But uh, it just seems that that dynamic, maybe it is flawed a little bit of having the 1A, 1B baby face. It's, it's kind of working as well as it could, given that one of the heels sticks. Yeah, especially early on, though, we talk about like 11,000 for, for, for Hogan and Slaughter at the, uh, the sports arena. But a couple more uh, statistics here, a couple more shows to talk about here. May 31st at the Rosemont Horizon in suburban Chicago, 11,000 for Warrior and Taker. June 3rd, MSG, a poor crowd. We didn't get the number here, unfortunately, mm. for Hogan and Slaughter in the Desert Storm match. Uh, 7,300 at the Cow Palace for Hogan and Slaughter as well that same week. So at this point, it's pretty clear that the... The leading feud and the better draw is the Ultimate Warrior and the Undertaker. Hogan and Slaughter, massive backstep here uh, in terms of... And that's, that's a really big thing for the perception of Hogan because Hogan was always... You know, when, when Savage was champion, Hogan was still the top star. And, and people yes. saw him that way. People believed, that, okay, well, when Hogan comes back, he's the top guy, whatever. When Warrior was champion, it was still the same thing. Hogan's the star, you can't get away from that. This is really the first time... That somebody is demonstrably hotter than Hogan when you by, by just by looking at numbers alone. Yeah, I mean Savage drew well in '88 yeah. when Hogan was out of the picture. Yeah, again making a movie. Uh, Warrior did not draw well in 1990 when Hogan was out of the picture. This is the first time Hulk in the picture and is and someone's drawing better than him. Uh, a note on that Desert Storm match from MSG drew a poor crowd apparently. Many consider that one of Hulk's best matches of the 1990s. Admittedly, not saying much, but uh, <laughs> it's good. And uh, really, when you watch that match, I know it's not on TV, but man, you just wish they would have just blown it off at that point rather than <laughs> somehow continue. I mean, you look at these declining numbers, it's very clear that feud is running on fumes. Yeah. That, that, that's that's telling the tale right there, and you can say it is a good match, uh, especially because there's, again there's, there's a fireball in there, there's some blood. It's it's stuff that you don't typically see in the WWF, yeah, so it kind of it makes it for a good dynamic. Yeah, Hogan comes out in his war fatigue, which is a little <laughs> much with his helmet and stuff like that. Yes. Well, the war is still going on, so you you, you have to be prepared, I suppose. <laughs> yes. But, uh... It never ends. <laughs> Donald Rumsfeld is booking the WWF in 1991. <laughs> I knew oh, I'd get a good, good political clip in there on this show. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, well, I mean, like we say, damning with faint praise on one of Hawk's best matches of the 90s, but this is a good one. Um, however, there is some fallout from that side night's main event we talked about. While no official announcement has been made, says Meltzer, it has been reported elsewhere and rumored widely within wrestling that when the new season begins in September, the WWF will no longer be on NBC. I do know that the WWF has already negotiated elsewhere for putting together occasional television specials, and elsewhere is not one of the four networks. The six-year NBC run apparently was felled by the poor ratings of the February primetime special, uh, which happened right after all the negative perps around the Slaughter title win and the Hogan uh, USO tour. 
and the Saturday Night's Main Event shows drew lower ratings for the first time ever uh, than Saturday Night Live, both times it's appeared this season. Uh, Titan's biggest backers are also out of power. Uh, Brandon Tartikoff, uh, who headed NBC, is now gone to Paramount, while Dick Ebersol, who obviously is the real force in getting WWF on NBC to begin with, lost most of his power in the company in the plunge of the Today Show ratings. Uh, so without two of his biggest backers, Vince, and with the ratings kind of in a bit of a freefall, it's gone. Suddenly it's main event, gone from NBC. And what a symbolic blow that is. I don't yes. think that can be understated because, you know, even if you don't know any of this stuff going on behind the scenes, if you're just, you know, a kid like I was at this period and you're watching WWF and all of a sudden there's no more Saturday Night's Main Event, you're thinking, wait, why is that? Mm, yeah. That stinks. Like, you're disappointed. And the story is, well, the promotion just not as hot as it once was. It's not as hot a TV property as it was six years ago. Uh, we should point out, of course, Saturday Night's Main Event does land on Fox eventually, but not until early 92, and they get just two shows before being canceled there. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah, so, I mean, again, sign of the times. Uh, you know, while they've got some good things going on, Warrior Taker feud, uh, big numbers in Europe, the bottom line is this is still a promotion in a bit of a decline here domestically. Uh, we talked about it some for 1990, mentioned it again a few minutes ago. Saturday's Main Event just really started feeling like less and less of a big deal. And I don't know if it was due to the increased number of pay-per-views or what, but... Um, yeah, we, we we talked about that kind of glory period of the range, that 87, 88 run of, of, of main events and Saturday's Main Events, where they were doing big numbers before they introduced SummerSlam um, and before the Royal Rumble was a pay-per-view too. By now, even by 89, it feels like the novelty of Silence Main events kind of started to wear off a little bit. Just that, just think how they push it more than anything else. Like, the, pro, the, the promotion, as you said, isn't hot, and these shows aren't either as a result. Like, you know, we talked about you know, the one previously, the, the one in February, Hogan and Tugboat versus Quake and Bravo, and that, that was on fumes. I mean, that, that had already exhausted the fumes. That was just that, not a hot issue at all. And that was, like, one of the big things on the February show. Uh, you know, again, even the year before, the 1990 show, we talked about you know, Warrior and Bravo you know, being a big match on there. It's, it doesn't feel like because the promotion isn't hot, therefore the show's not hot. And like it, the prestige factor, which you mentioned before with Sky, that whole idea of they are on on this big deal network. This is, a, you know, this, this is kind of a staple of what WWF television is, and now it's considered not good enough to have it. And that, that, that hurts. Yeah, and you know, going back to this... Um, idea of the pay-per-views, you know, uh, maybe impacting Saturday's main event. Saturday's main event, like, in 86, was a place that they would run their biggest matches. Remember, they did Hogan Orndorff mm. on Saturday's main event right after they drew that huge number in Toronto. Yeah. But here, because you've got pay-per-views, you're not going to do your biggest matches. And truthfully, they didn't have a big match like that anymore to even run on Saturday's main event. Yeah, I mean, it feels if, like if NBC genuinely requested it, if the best they could request is is Warrior and Slaughter when Slaughter was kind of dead, that says something. Yeah, it's a sign of the times for sure. And if you know, if there's any concern, or if there was any concern on the WWF end over Saturday's main event being canceled, it just was not reflected in how they put the shows together or booked them <laughs> at all. I mean, it, it you you go back to you know a show you mentioned the summer of '90 Saturday's main event. It just felt really ho-hum, and it's like, yeah, we're on NBC, here's the WWF, but yeah, they didn't shoot the major angles. on. They were shooting all the big angles on syndication, but 
you could skip these Saturday night's main events. If yes. Yeah. And, and they did. Yeah, and they did. And then they didn't, they weren't there to skip anymore. Yeah, that thing of kind of, you know, really taking it for granted type of situation where it's like, if you just treat it like content to fill, they don't need that. You know, the, the whole, and again, that's, that's what a waste of the vehicle. Yeah. Interesting. It, it is what like, it is. And it feels like the TV now. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't it just, <laughs> just, uh, yeah, just, just there's more of it. Just, yeah, you've got to fill five <laughs> hours a week. More content. content. <laughs> Shifting gears to a, uh, another story here in the company. While no official announcement has been made, the WWF is expected to announce within the next week or so, this is uh, at the end of June, I believe, its first major outdoor baseball stadium extravaganza in three years for July 14th at Bush Stadium in St. Louis, which was the first I'd heard of this. Uh, the top matches on the card are tentatively scheduled to be Hulk Hogan versus Sergeant Slaughter with Randy Savage as the referee, uh, which will later be held as part of their program in other markets as well. And the Ultimate Warrior versus The Undertaker in a loser must get carried from the ring in a coffin match. Uh, so those were the big matches on top. They're putting both feuds on for a big show in St. Louis. And there's a uh, more of the story to this. Yeah, so the St. Louis show absolutely happens uh, with those two matches on top. So Meltzer had the scoop here. The reason for running Bush Stadium here is very interesting. And it goes back to something we mentioned at the start of this podcast. Building wars that were going on between WWF and WCW in select markets. So in the case of St. Louis, uh, for, we should back up here. WWF for years had building exclusivity on the main building in most major markets here in the yeah. U.S. So that's why WCW always ran, for lack of a better term, the secondary or the crappier venue in a given city, <laughs> right? That's why they never – it's M- MSG. It's yeah, exactly. like the easiest thing to say. It's why they never ran MSG because WWF – uh, had exclusivity on that for pro wrestling. Um, and Meltzer talks about that, you know, while people talk about WWF is trying to be a monopoly in its industry, you know, sports teams certainly had exclusivity yeah, in certain buildings. But where this St. Louis thing becomes interesting and why WWF chooses to run Bush Stadium in the summer is WCW actually got aggressive in St. Louis, and was able to get multiple dates at the arena. And that pissed WWF off. So they decided to run the St. Louis Cardinals baseball stadium. That's Bush Stadium. Uh, Interestingly enough, July 14th was also the date of WCW's Great American Bash Mm. (laughs) pay-per-view. One of the low points. Yes, one of the low points in the history of this industry. Uh, So uh, the Bush Stadium show, although I have never seen it, uh, I'm sure was the better show that night. Uh, Meltzer mentioned, uh, you read it, that it was the first major outdoor baseball stadium extravaganza in three years. The previous one would have been WrestleFest 88 in Milwaukee, which was headlined by Savage DiBiase and then Hogan and Andre in a cage. I think that was the only house show or one of the very few uh, house shows Hogan worked in the summer of 88 before making his return for SummerSlam. The two big outdoor summer shows uh, don't exactly be lighting the box office on fire, says Meltzer here. There was a July 7th show. It was Vancouver, British Columbia. 60,000-seat stadium they wanted to run there. They'd sold 4,000 tickets as of a few days back. Uh, No word on the Bush Stadium show whatsoever, other than there was more talk about the show before it was announced than there is now that it's actually being pushed, basically just on on what we talked about before with the the St. Louis Wars. Yeah, so... 
Meltzer mentions that the St. Louis show was to be released on Coliseum Home Video as WrestleFest 91. Mm. Again, just like Milwaukee three years ago. That is WrestleFest 88. It is a Coliseum Home Video release. Uh, it, I, it is on the network. It is. It features Brutus Beefcake's grooming tips. Oh, no. <laughs> wait, wait. Is this WrestleFest 88? Oh, wait. Or no, no, no. Sorry. Let me backtrack. 91's the one with the Beefcake tips. Okay, yeah, because I want to point this out. Here's the thing. <laughs> this St. Louis show... It's not WrestleFest 91. WrestleFest 91 is released as a Coliseum Home video, but it's just your standard Coliseum Home video, which apparently has Bruce Beefcake's grooming tips on it. <laughs> it has no action from Bush Stadium in St. Louis. So I don't know why that happened. Um, the show does draw 19,000 people, 14,500 paid, uh, which maybe doesn't sound great for a baseball stadium, but it is eons better uh, than the dreadful houses WCW ended up doing at the arena. Sub 2,000 people in attendance for both of them. Oh, tremendous. Yeah, it is funny how like WCW, again, we'll talk about this shortly because WCW is going to get a lot of attention in the second half of this podcast, but the inability for them to kind of capitalize on what they had is pretty staggering. And eventually they would, we mentioned MSG, they would get to do a show at the Paramount like two years later in 93, which I think like it was just a complete disaster of a show. And uh, it seemed like when they would get into these venues, they, they just were never, they were never going to, at this point in time, the promotion was never going to put them away in there, you know? Yeah, and we're talking about the early stages of the WWF decline here in 91. It needs to be pointed out, WCW in the summer of 1991 is absolute cow manure. <laughs> I mean, it is bad. I mean, this is a promo. I mean, it's decline. Uh, had started long ago, and it was yeah. near the nadir. It, it is really bad. But yeah, um, never seen this St. Louis show. It was not WrestleFest 91. WrestleFest 91 is on the network. It's just a Coliseum video. I, I was asking, I think WrestleFest 88 is on the network, too. Yeah, it is. It is. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that's that. Uh, interesting, one last note about St. Louis. I looked up no shows, lots of them for that St. Louis show. So, <laughs> despite the fact it was presented as a big deal, uh, Roddy Piper was off filming a movie, so he did not appear as scheduled. Uh, Road Warrior Hawk, Mr. Perfect, and Jake Roberts also do not appear as advertised. I believe all three were injured. Uh, this uh, And those injuries led to a scheduled Bret Hart-Ricky Steamboat match getting scrapped. Oh. Yeah, yeah that would have been, I think, just the second time they wrestled. Yeah. They wrestled in, what was it, 86 at the in Boston, Boston Garden? Garden? Yeah, yeah, good match uh, for that time period. Uh, so that Vancouver show you mentioned, I looked this up because I'd never heard of that either. I, I had heard of St. Louis, but not uh, this Vancouver show. They ended up only doing 5,500, but it looks like it was not held at a big stadium. Yeah, I think they shifted. I, I, even, I even Googled the arena. This is, I got the arena off historywwf.com, and it was like a hockey arena they ran. So I, I don't know what the big stadium would be in vancouver to be honest with you i i don't know if it's where the bc lions play in the <laughs> cfl but uh they did not run there no maybe to the bomb scare who knows yeah yes 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 so that's taking up with canada now um yeah the only other thing that's this one that coliseum releases that's where the uh the hearts lod tag match uh was released it was on the russell fest 91 tape oh, um okay. Yeah, so Hogan returns to action this past Friday night. This is June 28th. We're rounding off this period here uh, for these two feuds. And his matches with Sergeant Slaughter drew approximately 6,500 paid in Chicago, 5,000 paid in Auburn Hills, Michigan, 4,100 in Providence, Rhode Island. Good grief. 
The Chicago crowd was the smallest I can recall for a Hogan appearance in several years, says Meltzer. These small crowds do more to the fact that Slaughter is dead as a challenger than anything in the news. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the world, uh, which we'll talk about the news <laughs> later. Uh, nevertheless, the word around wrestling was the advance sales for Hogan's future dates had gone flat this week. This weekend, as irony would have it, uh, when you really think about it, Warrior and Taker clearly becomes the number one drawing issue in the company with the downfall of the Hogan gates. And we're going to talk about maybe part of the reason why those gates went down in part 2B. Uh, but there you go. Not the solution, Hulk Hogan is world champion. Yeah, I, I you know, wanted to mention, it's, it's definitely part 2B that we're going to talk about why Hogan had taken time off during this period. You know, uh, you'll know, you note Liam read Hogan returned to action. Uh, there's a very good reason why uh, he had taken some time off. Again, you will have to tune into part 2B of this podcast to find out why that is, although my guess is you probably already know. Uh <laughs> Turns out Hogan, yeah, like you said, getting the title back was not this panacea, was it? Sure wasn't. No, I mean that was the thing. It's like okay, they're look, the front office. They look at nineteen. Oh well, we tried with Warrior, although I don't think they really tried as hard as they did. No, they didn't. Okay, and they're like, well, we got to go back to Hulk, and the sky will be blue forever again. Well, sky one blue when you went back to Hulk. <laughs> It wasn't at all. Uh, now, they tried to make it look very blue in the Superstars of Wrestling intro post-Mania, which was totally built around Hogan and Americana. I can't remember. Did they start doing that, like, after the Royal Rumble before Mania, that particular intro? That's how I – my memory of it is that they, they moved to that in the build to WrestleMania 7. Okay, okay. So um, I had not seen that one in the t- that particular full intro Uh when I was watching the TV for part one, but yeah, it, it, you know, having watched all the, every superstars in full, God, I love youtube.com. Oh, that's great. During this period, every single superstars uh, was at our disposal, uh, April, May, and June. Um, so yeah, they had that intro, but it was later replaced with another new show intro. So um, that featured multiple stars of the world wrestling federation. So that kind of wraps us up on the Hogan warrior, dynamic but there is a story that we need to address oh uh, you you uk <laughs> journals <laughs> the tv show hard copy is working on doing a story on the ultimate warrior similar to the one that was released in the globe last week which said that jim helwig used to be a homosexual prostitute before his wrestling days uh, the only WF reaction i heard to the story was just to try and ignore it and hope it goes away which is probably the best reaction Uh, Thus far, there haven't been any reports of Warrior getting negative reactions at the house shows, even though the Globe story has been the talk inside the wrestling business. Uh, The Ultimate Warrior story in the Globe has been picked up in tabloids in both Europe and Australia. The story in Australia was headlined, and I'm quoting here, Warrior, an ultimate gay boy. Since this, not that mince- there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> no, no, they don't mince words in Australia. Uh, since this story won't make mainstream media in the U.S., I don't think there will be any repercussions from it. Says Dave. What a what a story this is. Warrior, many things. I don't think a homosexual prostitute was one of them. Again, not that there's anything wrong. Uh, there's anything wrong with it. <laughs> although, although, I sent you the the actual. Yes. Graphic the, of, of the publication of the Globe and what they wrote. Any any big takeaways from what you saw? Okay, let me bring this thing back up. This picture. <laughs> let me bring this picture back up. I, yeah, I, I was in tears when you sent me this. Okay, the headline reads: "I caught Ultimate Warrior 
having kinky sex with my hunky husband. <laughs> ah, tabloids. So, there is a picture of the warrior with a very odd outfit. Here. <laughs> yeah. What is this look Jim Helwig is going for? Uh, next to some random guy who I guess is the, quote, hunky husband, but... This is yeah. strange. This is a very odd story. There's, <laughs> yeah. a, there's, a, there's a, a, another, like, kind of, like, subheading, which is wife starved for love while he did something. Have you got it in front of you, what, what exactly what that yes. line is? Oh, 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 I just saw another uh, line <laughs> from this that you're gonna, I'm going to have to reread because you won't believe this. Uh, but, yeah, Ring Heartthrob makes gals swoon, but he sold his body to men while his wife starved for love. What a what a bit of writing. <laughs> okay, you ready for this? Well, no, this is this reads at the top of the article. So the article's got a picture of, I guess, that's Helwig and his wife, then Helwig with the, quote, hunky husband, and then there's a picture of Helwig in a bodybuilding competition. So those are three oh, photos. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Up above the headline, I caught Ultimate Warrior having kinky sex with my hunky husband, reads <laughs> this. Quote, AIDS victim's <laughs> widow blows the lid off TV wrestling super studs sleazy secret life as gay grappler. <laughs> End quote. Really rolls off the tongue. I'll tell you what, this this is so much alliteration, you would have thought it was written by Pat Patterson. <laughs> to bring the focus back to the athletes for a moment here, before we move in a completely different direction, I think we should examine our views on the ultimate warrior the wrestler right now as we've done this timeline halfway through 91 gone all the way through 1990 with the rumble by rate the savage match and the taker feud drawing well ultimate warrior is having a very good 1991 in my opinion he is i cannot help but go back and think how that rick rude feud post mania six really screwed the perception of him as the ability to be the top guy because otherwise nothing he was involved in was bad. I tell you what, man, you make the wrong move at the wrong time. And instead of starting out as the champion hot and he gets that cold treatment and there you go, you know, like we, again, we, we talked about this, didn't we? Like in 1990, how like his, the ratings of that satellite's main event in February 90 were actually stronger for the warrior match than the Hogan match. And, and warrior had Bravo to work with. And, like, mm -hmm. it's not like Warrior has this track record of failure beforehand. And No, I mean, people will complain about the Andre feud mm. in late 89 just because of the nature of the matches and Andre hated working with them and people would leave pissed. Um, I don't know if they drew poorly, though. No, I, I, they, I, did, I heard they did pretty well. Okay, so there you go. And, you know, what's interesting about that, again, people can go back and listen to this, uh, part one of 1990, what's so fascinating about Warrior doing better ratings than Hogan on that particular show is Hogan had Buster Douglas, the newly crowned boxing champion of the world, in his match. Yeah. So I just think it is so fascinating. To me, this is one of the big takeaways why I've loved doing this series with you, Liam, is maybe the ultimate Warrior as a top guy isn't this disaster it was made out to be. Maybe he just got, like you said, the wrong program at the wrong time, and it just completely uh, screwed him up. Because, yeah, I mean, him and Slaughter drew well at the Rumble. Hogan, Slaughter, drew terrible at Mania. 
I, you know, Warriors outdrawing Hogan on the houses here in 91. Um, you know, even going back to the fall of 1990, like we said, him and Savage, that program before they got to Mania it was an improvement upon Rude. And, and Hogan and Quake was losing steam. Oh, big time. So, yeah, the, the, I, I just think it's really fascinating. This, The notion that going back to Hulk Hogan in 1991 was this cure-all was simply wrong. Yeah. Absolutely. Maybe they should have tried harder with the Warrior. And keep that in mind, listeners, because we are going to put a lovely little bow on this at the end of this podcast um, as we talk about the situation with Warrior and Hogan. Um now, of course, is there anything else you want to add on the Warrior and Hogan at the moment? No, I think that's good. I think it's time to get to another insane person. <laughs> a man who is getting his own coming and going section, as you noted here. Um, Sid Yudi, everybody's favorite. <laughs> everybody's favorite big man. Makes quite a racket this quarter. Uh, it is pretty much straight away. We're going to backtrack here to the April 8th Observer, where Meltzer writes the following. The biggest news of the past week concerns the status of Sid Vicious with World Championship Wrestling. Vicious, keep this in mind, who is under contract with WCW until September 1st, gave notice this past week that he was wanting to leave the company on May 31st. It was no secret within the organization that Vicious is claiming a September 2nd starting date with Titan Sports. <laughs> Titan. As of the end of the week, it appears Vicious' departure and eventual landing in the WWF was an inevitability, but WCW is making a last-ditch effort to keep Vicious in a meeting that was scheduled to take place on Monday afternoon. As you may have read elsewhere, there have been problems over the past few weeks in negotiations with Vicious and Jim Hurd. Vicious has a $5,000 per week contract with WCW and asked for a substantial raise and asked to take two months off this summer. Oh, had- what a piece of business that is. <laughs> Awful. Yeah. I want more money. Oh, and I'm not going to be here for a couple months. It has been reported elsewhere and to me that Vicious was asking for seven grand per week, but other company sources indicate the figure was actually eight grand a week, which would make him the third highest paid wrestler in the company behind Ric Flair and Lex Luger. Not Sting, though. Not Sting. Uh, one week later... Let's just come off his own uh, underwhelming title run. Uh, yeah, indeed. Very much mirroring the Ultimate Warrior. And I think he was on like 750 grand himself at this period of time. Maybe not that much, but he's on... He's on yeah, the fact that he's going to be paid more than Sting is quite noble. Uh, one week later, Meltzer says, topping off the news, is the split that between Sid Vicious and WCW appears to have been reconciled at this stage. About two weeks back, Vicious, who had been asked to renegotiate his contract, uh, gave his notice and gave the word he would sit out the summer and join Titan Sports in September. However, after negotiations over the past week, it appears the two sides have come to terms. Jim Hurd said late Wednesday he was 99% certain Vicious was staying and wouldn't be taking the summer off after all. (laughs) Another major office executive on Thursday called a done deal. Uh, Although those close to Vicious have said that the contract hasn't been signed yet and until it is... It's not a done deal, and they turn out to be the smart ones. Nobody that I would call a good source, says Dave, that's probably a real backhanded compliment to somebody, has given me any terms that the two sides have verbally agreed to, although the rumor mill within the promotion seems to be that Vicious has agreed to 350 grand per year in base pay, plus bonuses for pay-per-view events. However, one week later, it swings the exact opposite direction again. Forget last week's headline, says Dave. Sid Vicious is bolting WCW for the WWF. 
The word came down in the middle of this past week when the contract that both sides had agreed upon the previous week was drawn up and presented to Vicious. He then gave his notice once again, effective the May 19th pay-per-view show in St. Petersburg, that being Super Bowl. WCW officials believe Vicious was promised the main event spot opposite Hulk Hogan at next year's WrestleMania in Indianapolis as the lure to get him away. It appears that WCW made some major promises to Vicious besides just money in order to keep him. There was some demoralization within WCW since the company did everything it could to keep the guy and basically he turned down guaranteed money and probably the title in order to get a chance to lose to Hulk Hogan. Okay, you take a sip of water because you just read a lot. <laughs> um, let's do a general overview of Sid in WCW. I know you've been racking your brain at this. You've been texting me. I didn't mean to like, you know, I hope oh. I didn't interrupt any of your weekly plans, but you've texted me multiple times. Oh, I'm really... <laughs> Stuck on this Sid thing at WCW. Um, yeah, I didn't intend it to be that way. But <laughs> for to look back, comes in the promotion, 1989, part of a tag team, the Skyscrapers with Dan Spivey, uh, is very much getting babyface reactions, kind of like we talked about with The Undertaker earlier, uh, especially at center stage. He was a real center stage favorite. Yeah. Uh, if you go back and talk to the folks who attended those shows, Skyscraper Squashes very much replaced Road Warriors Squashes uh, as like kind of like the real favorites of the diehards. Yeah. And interestingly enough, those teams were uh, supposed to be programmed against one another in early 1990, but the Road Warriors quit. So uh, that, that feud really never materializes. So Sid himself gets hurt at the end of 89. In a match against the Steiners. Yep. It's the a very line. good match, by the way, uh, at Clash 9. And he resurfaces the following spring of 1990 as a horseman. What's really interesting to me about Sid and the Horseman is I think, you know, it's got this negative vibe. Obviously, what happens with Sid, you can't help but think what, what happened years later with Sid and Art. But, you know. Sid is always, I think, considered a bad fit with the horseman from the horseman perspective. Yeah. But you know what else that people don't talk about enough and that I feel very strongly about? I think Sid was a bad fit in the horseman from a Sid perspective. Hmm. In the sense that, like, Sid was a guy who should have been on his own with a manager squashing fools left and right. Yeah. If there's second, I think, like, him being the muscle for the world champion just wasn't the best use of his, uh, what he brings to the table. I'd agree with that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I just, it's funny. I think most guys, it would be this big honor to be in the four horsemen, right? I mean, yeah. you wrote about Brian that you, yeah. we know what meant to him to be in it, but I think with Sid, you know, I, I think there was some, uh, hard feelings that Sid didn't take it that way, but I, I just don't think Sid should have been put in the group. I, and I, I wonder if it was a deal where, you know, Tully Blanchard, he failed uh, the drug test in WWF and it cost him his spot in WCW. If Tully gets signed by WCW, if they just like look past that failed drug test or the failed drug test doesn't happen, I wonder what happens with Sid in 1990 because he's probably not going to be a horseman. They're going to bring Barry back. And that's and they're going to reunite the '88 group. That's very interesting. This trajectory would change drastically without being that guy. Yeah, and if you look at later in 1990, now uh, he does headline a pay per view against 
newly crowned champion Sting, Halloween Havoc. It has an awful finish. Um, but you you have to protect Sid, I suppose, um, there. And I, I don't think that show drew particularly well. No, we didn't. Okay, and, and it really shouldn't have ex- been expected to because they didn't do a great job building the match up at all. That should have been, you know, the, the Sting title run was an even bigger failure than the Warrior one, in my yeah. opinion. And, you know, again, I think what's sad about that is they had – some people I think they could have put in that role, Sid being one of them. But, yeah. you know, him getting hurt the way he did earlier in the year just screwed everything up with how they had to turn Luger abruptly. Because Luger was, you know, having Sting and Luger feud I think was a no-brainer. And I think was the plan yeah. originally um, it, for the fall. But, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so after that pay-per-view, Sid uh, has a very interesting couple month period. Do you remember this? The his end of nineteen ninety? When he kind of like gets like put back into the skyscrapers at Starcade there's like a kind of random moment. Yeah, but he's still a horseman. Yeah. But he's being booked as a baby face against these frickin' schmucks, Motor City Madman and Big Cat. The, yeah, the, the parade of stiffs that Ollie Anderson brought in in 1990, these fucking losers, like the yes. Mercy Madman. Just, uh, yeah, the, the, fucking the match with the Night Stalker. Oh my god, a, a contender for worst match ever. Night <laughs> Stalker is <laughs> by the way. Yeah, so, but he's being booked as a babyface, kind of like how you think he would be booked as a single. Yeah. But he's still a horseman while doing a reunion gimmick with Dan Spivey, and they're kind of babyfaces. And then in 91, obviously, it's just kind of, as we turn the calendar, it's just pure horseman. He almost kills Pillman in war games. You know a lot about that. And he starts feuding with Eligante as a result. So it was supposed to work with Pillman in a feud, but it was mysteriously dropped. Well. After war games. Yeah. And actually, as an addendum, for those of you who haven't read the book and you want to know the timing of it, the very humorous period where they believed Sid had changed his mind and was going to stay was the week of the show in the Meadowlands when he wrestled Pillman and basically made a big fuss about how he didn't want to sell for Brian and the company, because they didn't want to ruffle Sid's feathers during that delicate period of negotiations, pretty much just let him do whatever he wanted in the Pillman match. And he just squashed Brian in five minutes and beat him with like a backbreaker. That was a whole... God, Pillman got damaged so much by bad booking yeah, that. obviously you go into that so well um you know i mean even you know even like the good matches with barry i mean it, that booking didn't necessarily didn't give him a lot of great favors so <laughs> all right let's bring it back to where we're at with sid now him wanting to leave wcw was he even worth to wcw what he was asking for given kind of what he had been for the previous two years this is what I've been agonizing about. <laughs> I don't know why it's bothered me so much. It's just that I've been trying to figure out the answer to, because Sid gets, a, you know, his, his, his abilities in the ring obviously get maligned and, and whatever, but, and he's not the most reliable podcast guest either, I hear. But, no, no, he's not. But with that said, eat stroke. <laughs> not going to get into that. No, no, we don't need to, but. I, it depends how you see what his his potential value is. And it also depends how value can be measured in WCW. And and what you know the big deal here, and I know this isn't that you're gonna touch on, is the perception game. So you might want to mm-hmm. hit that now because I think that's part of the, the issue here with, with what okay. his value is. 
given the state of WCW in the spring of 1991, you can make the argument giving Sid the kind of money he was asked for would be a bad investment because he hasn't been booked well already and he's not going to change your fortunes if you keep him. But the problem is the perception, which is also the reality, that WCW is the very clear number two organization here in the States. So if Sid, who is, no matter how he's been booked, you know, recognized, I think, by most fans as one of the quote-unquote top guys of WCW, if he just bolts for the WWF, uh, that, that just makes you look bad and like the number two. Yeah. And this is something they'd have trouble with all year when it comes to their top stars who are under contract, essentially just bolting out of the company because things look bad or, or, yeah. or don't seem to benefit. They may have a better option elsewhere. Yeah. And look, the manner in which he's trying to leave, and we're going to touch on this in more detail uh, in the next couple of minutes, it's completely unprofessional. I mean, the guy has a valid contract through September, and he's just like, yeah, I don't want to finish this contract. I actually would like to leave and go to WWF in May. <laughs> I mean, that what a piece of business that is. Uh, he did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's I really can't blame him for wanting to go to Titan. Right. I, it just no. it seemed like a more natural fit. He has not been booked well. Like if you're Sid and you look at where you're at in 1991, you're not going to be a difference maker in WCW. You've been booked probably kind of poorly. Mm. I, I think. You know, the idea of you being this top guy, you know, Meltzer mentioned, eh, maybe he's going to be the champion. I don't know how that would have worked. That's, I mean, a long road to go down that yeah. we don't have time for on this podcast. But if I'm Sid, I do want to go to WWF. Uh, the tr- truth with Sid, you know, just looking at his career as a whole, to be honest, he was made for the territorial system. Yeah, he really was. In that, you know, it, he comes in, beats up everybody. He wrestles the top baby face in the promotion and he loses. And then he moves somewhere else. Kind of like yeah. Kamala. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? It's a good comparison. So that's what it's for. But, you know, we're, we're done with the territorial system at this point. And, you know, honestly, special attraction is how he would be best used. Um, not necessarily at, like a world title contender. And um, I don't know. I, I don't blame him for wanting to leave, even though he's being a complete jackass about it. Oh, yeah. And there's, there's plenty of stories around this time of, of Sid just saying things that were so flippant to veterans like Arn Anderson and Barry Windham, saying basically he had nothing to learn from them because he was making more money already, which, which is just classic Sid. Um, there is it's the issue with what is he worth what he's asking for? Is it worth that much to WCW to not just look like the also-ran company that any anybody that gets any degree of momentum leaves... And becomes a bigger star elsewhere. And if, if they're if they're fighting this war over buildings, if they are mindful of the fact that they they look like number two and want to get to number one, they play this like they're the losers by letting him go the way they do. And they just it's just it's a shocking turn of events. See, I think that Sid had potential value, but when you look at it from Sid's perspective, again, to kind of put the shoe on the other foot here, he is. And I've probably been hearing for years that he is the built-in-a-lab Hulk Hogan opponent. Like, he yes. is the guy that, if you look at what Vince would love in a Hogan opponent, he's a giant, 
He can talk in a way that's intimidating. He looks great. He can kill people in a convincing fashion that looks exciting on television in squash matches. It looked, it, it can feel like a big match. You can see why Vince would love him. And you can see why Sid would think, that's what I should be. And the fact that he wasn't that in WCW and was never going to be that because the, the organization wasn't really structured in a way to get him there. It's kind they of They didn't have a Hulk Hogan. They didn't Sting, have a Hulk Sting Hogan. Sting was not Hulk Hogan. I'm sorry. Exactly. He just wasn't. No, that is exactly it. It's like they had done Sid and Sting and look what they did. That was the equivalent. And Sid had seen it. And they'd seen it too. So they had probably, they probably thought, you know what? It's not going to generate the results. Sid himself probably knew even if they did it, it wouldn't generate the results. So why not go to the place where it looks like it probably would? And so I can, I can see why, he, obviously, it makes all the sense in the world for him to leave. Um, can't condone the way he did. But if I was WCW, and I guess this is the question to you back, would you have made the bid? Would you have tried to get it just for the perception game? Well, if we're going to get into it, it sounds like they did. And he just elected <laughs> to say, look, okay, you're meeting my demands. Well, you know what, WCW? Losing to Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania sounds a lot better than being the WCW champion. And therein lies the problem with WCW and their perception. I'm going to be honest with you. And maybe some WCW hardcores, if they're listening to this podcast, will get all hot and bothered about this. Honestly, losing to Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania, just beating the match, is a better deal than being the WCW world champion at this point. Yeah, I'd agree. And that's, that's, that's part of what I was racking my brain with, too, is... At this point, I, I, they've had a horrible few years, WCW, at this point. Like, 1990 was just absolutely shambolic, and 1991 isn't shaping up to be all that much better at this point. <laughs> and it gets worse. And <laughs> it goes on to get even worse. But it's not like there is really any way to gauge what anybody's value in this company is, because nobody's drawing. So what's Sid's worth over Lex? What's Sid's worth over or under Sting? It's, it's really hard to tell, and it's like, I don't know if it's, it even crossed their minds of like, well, maybe if we did it differently and we had Sid as the babyface world champion, which at one point you know, in 93, they obviously had their designs on. I, yeah, I don't even, I mean, they made, they made an offer, they, they went for his demands, and he basically just told them to fuck off. So I guess in the end, maybe it doesn't matter what the offer was, and he was always going to go once he knew that the door was open. Yeah, and, and that's what it boils down to. And it's funny, you said difficult to, uh, you know, I, I don't know the word you use, but I'll say it's difficult to ascertain mm. value of guys when no one's drawing. What an uh, interesting remark that is to hear in 2020. <laughs> yeah, again, there's a lot of, lot, of, lot of similarities here between the failing companies of this time. Uh, and, or the yeah, I mean, of- it is. You know, I mean, I've always said, you know, modern WWF remind, or WWE reminds me of, early 90s WCW, not late 90s, because mm. late 90s, it, that comparison would connotate that a lot of guys today in WWE aren't trying, and that's not true. Yeah. They're giving effort, and there's a lot of talent there, just like there's a lot of talent early 90s WCW, but it wasn't drawn because no one was being booked particularly well. No. And, and the, so, set, the setting didn't help, the environment didn't help, the, the lack of... Again, just from a booking perspective, shot of the Black Scorpion and, and just the, the parade of, of cheap guys that Oli brought. It's like, this isn't going to draw. No, it's not. It didn't. And yeah. And and so, again, it's kind of a dick move. But Sid has, if I'm Sid, I'm looking to bolt. Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested how this started. 
Like, how do you, because you got to be careful to play that hand. Did Sid send out feelers to WWF? And they're like, yeah, we would definitely take you. And yeah. then he's like, all right, fuck it. I'm just going to act like an asshole. I'm going <laughs> out the door. Oh, I mean, I, I'm very intrigued how something like that happens. It, fe- it feels like it would have to be because he'd been there for a while. And he'd really, again, like from Sid's perspective, he, you know, his value was always kind of on the ascent during this period of time. It really only been that loss to Sting where he'd been kind of taking a bit of a, a bit of a loss. And again, they protected him like crazy. At this point, they're th- you know, they're, they were talking about feuding with Pillman, which he didn't want to do because of the credibility issue uh, with the size difference. And I wonder if it was just a thing where he went to them and said, you know what, I'm kind of thinking that... Because again, if, you, if you're looking at Sid, he's probably thinking, I'm probably not going to get above Flair. I'm probably not going to get above Lex and Sting, the guys who are... Who are you know, if they're in that spot, I'm not going to get above them. So I can see why he would look elsewhere. And again, because... You know, WF would probably absolutely just come, just come. We'll, you know, look at look at the, look at the the problems they've been having drawing for the last year. Again, this is April we're talking about when this actually happened. So they've been having problems drawing for most of the last sixteen months. It's only the first quarter of '91 that was actually looking pretty good. Um, but and, and and as we talked about a lot on this podcast, they need help on the high up echelon of the card with yeah. slaughter sucking. Now it's interesting <laughs> the way they choose to bring Sid in. <laughs> but I, we, we've got to kind of talk about um, the drama here. Now that we know Sid is leaving WCW, uh, we still have a pay-per-view date to worry about. We actually are going to talk about this, what's going on in WCW uh, in the lead to Super Brawl and Sid's final match. Yeah, so several weeks after he actually makes the deal, Sid gets pulled by WCW from all of his house show dates except for Super Brawl on May 19th. Uh, Meltzer says there is a lot of internal bitterness over this because he's being paid five grand a week to stay at home for a month. Uh, you can't blame him for that because it was a decision made by the company, but it does seem like he's getting one heck of a nice reward for walking out on a valid contract. <laughs> the explanation given to me, says Dave, was that the company feared Vicious, uh, if he were to work his scheduled dates, would suddenly be injured and thus get out of doing the stretcher job that's primed at the pay-view against El Gigante. Um, one WF official wanted to bet me that there was no way he's going out on the stretcher anyway. I didn't take the bet, by the way, says Dave. Which probably... ah! <laughs> Good job he didn't. Yeah, so there was a lot of stuff we had in the notes. and it Just to kind of, you know, I just sort of just put it here, it, it, the condensed version. Um, extreme measures taken by WCW just in case. Sid refused to go out on the stretcher as planned or even job at all in what was his last scheduled date, Super Bowl one against Eligante. They started obviously programming with uh, uh, Eligante with one man game. Yeah. The commentary starts mentioning Sid may not even show up at Super Bowl. Good sake. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, we're going to touch on this in a second, but let, let, let's keep going. Yeah, so over the last week, one week on, the word was that if Vicious didn't show up at Super Bowl, that WCW was, go- sorry, was not going to release him from the contract until it expired, which has now been confirmed as September the 5th. Believe it or not, the folks at Titan were pretty adamant about Vicious showing up as well, even though it would mean that their star attraction would probably do a clean job. Still, WCW planned uh, Elegante versus One Man Gang in their format sheets for the pay-per-view. Wow. 
Okay, so WCW's handling of the situation, you mentioned early, it totally comes across as we're the losers, we're number two in this country. I mean, not only are they unable to enforce a valid contract. Again, <laughs> this man was under contract until September 5th. They are letting him just walk away early and going to the competition. Yeah. And, right there. and dictate the terms on which he does. Like, they're <laughs> like, oh, God, I hope he, I hope he still jobs like we want him to at Super Brawl. Like, that's just kind of embarrassing. What <laughs> a bunch of pussies. Yeah, no, just <laughs> totally insane. Oh, God, please, please. Oh, we don't want to upset the man. We we need him to job Dele Gatsi at Super Bowl. Do whatever he wants. Yes, leave three months early. Go do it. Please. Like, Take him on, Bob. Yes, I just think it's fascinating that Sid was able to manipulate this situation this way. I think it speaks to the way WCW was run, and uh, it, it's pretty embarrassing stuff. From their perspective, we should mention Sid does show up at Super Bowl one and job for the record, but <laughs> not necessarily on the stretcher. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so we go to Super Bowl May nineteenth. As soon as the pin actually takes May place, May nineteenth. <laughs> this is why it's such a wretched day in wrestling history. Um, this match is, is, is just Sid just walks out. Looking like he could not give a fuck less about what's going to happen. As soon as the pin takes place, Sid just gets up like nothing happens and walks off while the one-man gang and Kevin Sullivan attack Eligante, hit him with a stretcher before Eligante recovers and they just run off. Um, according to Jim Hurd, Vicious will be using... Actually, you know what? We'll, we'll, we'll backtrack here. Before that, just a quick thought on Super Bowl. The performance of Sid... Just very unprofessional. I, you know, even before I knew all of these particulars, you know, I'd seen the show numerous mm-hmm. times. And you know, for the first, I, I mean, I, the first time I watched it was, you know, over, it was like 25, 20, something, even more than 25 years ago. And I was like, God, what, what the hell? Sid just gets up and leaves. That's, you don't see that every day. I'm like, <laughs> what was going on with that? And then it's funny to hear all this stuff and you're like, my God. Yeah. What a, what a, just a completely shambolic situation. According to Jim Hurd, Vicious will be using the name Sid Vicious in the WWF and will be released from his contract on May 20th, uh, which is very nice, one day after his, his, his obligation. Anyway, even though he's under contract to WCW until the 5th, WCW can actually hold up his Titan starting date until that point, but he is expected to be released and will start with Titan at the following television taping. Expect Vicious to get a big push right away. What a surprise, huh? Says Dave, which... Like he's going to be trading arm drags with a dragon in the second match, you know? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, you go through all this to get him. He's going to get a big push. And uh, very interesting. I think in terms of Titan wanting him to do the job and coming as quick as possible, I think that has a lot to do with something we're going to mention here in a few minutes, the SummerSlam main event. Mm, yeah. Because they're probably looking at it, they're like, okay, you know, they're looking at the top of the card. We need to, you know, they know what their main event is already for SummerSlam because that stuff's planned out months in advance. So like, we got to spruce this up. And yeah. I think Sid was a way, was their way to do that in their mind. Um, heard obviously wrong about the name. He is not Sid Vicious. He is we'll not. Moment. He is not. But uh, yeah, I, I, to be honest, if you're definitely thinking, they're going to let you go now. Just do what they say. Do what they say. Give them no problems and just get here. Yeah. You can, be- can believe their luck probably. Yeah, no, because, and look, this is a big thing, and this is how WWF operated during this time period. They operated as if whatever happened in the competition didn't matter, or their fans didn't know about. Yeah. 
And the reality is, I think your average WWF fan in 1991 is probably unaware that he just jobbed to Eligante at Super Bowl. Um, for me, I know that, you know, again, I'm 10 years old during this period. Sid was like a big deal. You know, yeah. the, I, I, when they first show him on TV, I'm like, holy shit, Sid Vicious is coming to WWF? This is a big time get for them. So yeah. um, I wasn't like, oh, he just lost to Eligante on pay-per-view. That that just was not a factor from the Titan perspective. Well, so I, I, I've seen some of the TV in like June and, you know, the end of May and June and July in 91. It's like, they don't, WWE doesn't even really make that big of a deal about the fact that it happened. They just kind of like try and sweep Sid under the rug. Oh, that he put over yeah. Eligante? Which is so odd because that was the whole point was you wanted to put Eligante over as your new uh, big monster. Correct me if I'm wrong. That was the period he was challenging Ric Flair on the houses. Yeah. And yeah. I th- which I think, you know, is maligned as everyone uh, made that out to be at the time. Like, didn't, like, Flair got some, like, passable matches out of him. And, Apparently. Yeah, and, and and it wasn't like, I don't think they drew, like, really poorly. No, the, the, the word was that they did well at first because, again, they'd actually done a decent job of making him look special. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, it's still, yeah, it's still horrible. It yeah, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, however, it is it's an odd name that kind of came out of nowhere. Paul Hondorf is wanting to come in as the manager of Sid Vicious in the WWF. Where the fuck did this come from? Sid Vicious uh, should be starting at the house shows in the WWF in July. Okay, I had never heard this Paul Orndorff rumor, <laughs> ever. Uh, I think he's still working Herb Abrams' UWF at this point? Yep. And they're about ready to put on one of the most disastrous pay-per-views in the history of this industry. <laughs> uh, Orndorff had been bought in in, uh, in 1990 in the WCW by... Sorry, the WCW, like on Bret Hart. WCW. Um, and he had a bit of a falling out with Ole, um, and he had gone to Herb, and he'd been there ever since. So, yeah, he was just kind of, like, lingering. Yeah, and... Um... This reminds me of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, quote, throwing his hat in the ring to be the Lakers head coach. This was a few years ago, and I remember a lot of guys on Sports Talk Radio uh, made fun of this. The Lakers had a head coaching vacancy, and Kareem, a former player, is like, oh, yeah, you know, I'd like to be the coach of the Lakers. Despite having, like, no coaching experience and seeming like a just all-around terrible idea. It's like me coming to this podcast, like, hey, you know, Vince McMahon's listening. I wouldn't mind being the booker of the WWE. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind like being champion. job. You know, I got no, you know, I I know a lot about wrestling. I got no expertise in TV. If you want to hire me, yeah, you know, I'm out here. Just give me a call. Yeah. The phone can ring at any time, Kyle. Yes. Paul Orndorff? What in the natural alliance this would have been. Mm-hmm. Still probably would have been better than Whippleman. Yes. <laughs> yes. Honestly. Yes. Um, Paul Orndorff bringing in Sid to get revenge on Hulk Hogan all these years later. Doesn't oh! really seem like... I, is that what Paul was thinking? Is that Maybe. what Paul was thinking? He could play that up. Oh, you know, I've never forgiven you, Hogan. Um, yeah, who knows? Sid's debut under another name highlighted the World Wrestling Federation television tapings on uh, May 28th and 29th. Vicious debuted doing non-taped run-ins to a huge reaction both nights, and the working name for now is Sid Justice as a babyface, which obviously is the name they stick to. Thus endeth any ideas for a Hulk Hogan-Sid Vicious match for next year's WrestleMania, says Dave. I'm well, told Sid, yeah. I'm told Sid Justice will be brought along slowly and not given a major program as quickly as you would think. That's as true. If, 
Yep. As a face, it appears when he gets rolling, which he will, that the Ultimate Warrior's position as the number two babyface in the promotion is in clear jeopardy, which is an interesting comment. The first we actually see of Sid, I should mention, is they just, like, out of nowhere on, like, some of the TV shows, they start playing, like, a video clip of Sid kind of gurning at the screen um, with, like, a kind of, like, a psycho sound effect playing at the same time. And it's like, that's Sid. That's Sid, like you said before, it's like, that's Sid, just, you know, Sid Vicious, he's come to the WF. Pretty interesting deal. Um, but yes, on the house shows, he's, uh, well, on the, on the tapings, he's doing dark segments, it should be noted, uh, on these run-ins. Yeah, the run-ins were on Earthquake one night and the Mountie. I guess, like, they just came out and they did something that, you know, we'd see in modern times where it's like, eh, you know, they, they just come out, get some heat with the crowd. Oh, you know, who wants a piece of me? And then a surprise comes out and it's Sid. Can you imagine being at one of those tapings? Oh. That would have been a really cool thing in May of 1991 to see freaking Sid Vicious walk out of nowhere, especially if you're somebody who has that cursory awareness of WCW, but doesn't follow the behind the scenes yeah. stuff. Like you're not reading the episode. That would have been like awesome. Uh, to yeah. see that. Uh, and it was special. Like you said, it was dark. That was not shown on television. I've never seen it uh, either nice. segment personally. Uh, as far as the actual first TV appearances, yeah, it's not the same uh, psycho knockoff um, that uh, would become part of his entrance music in later years. No, no, it's more of a kind of a dirge, but it's just like this kind of shrieking sound and, effect. Yeah, and, and it's a weird look. On the, it, it was very kind of different the look of it than mm. you got from this period. Although just, you know, having this strange, imposing newcomer growling at the camera, it reminded me of the way they first showed Bam Bam Bigelow in 87. Yeah, that's actually interesting because I when, it, when I saw that in the notes, I didn't, I was like, what's he referring to there? And I didn't actually draw that comparison. That's a good, uh, that's a good call. When they, he looked like a heel. Yeah, I remember Bam, when they showed him. Bam, yeah, Bam Bam, they just, it was just zooming in on this, like, grunting man's head, which had, like, tattoos. all these tattoos, and you're like, who is this guy? And, you know, here there's more of an awareness who this is, but, yeah, it was just, um, it was an interesting way, I guess, to first show him on TV, and it was weird to the announcers, like, that's Sid Justice. Yeah, they know him immediately. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh, he's Sid Justice now? And, you know, that nickname, even, again, um, as a kid, I'm like, oh, well, I guess he's going to be a good guy now? Yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, justice is, you know, changing the name from vicious to justice is obviously connotating. This is going to be a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> so him being bought as a baby face. Quite an interesting move. Uh, I guess like when you look at it, like a, a big part of this is the fact you got the Undertaker there at the same time who they've just brought in. And it's like getting the big pushes, the new killer heel. It's, it's indestructible. So, like, it's kind of to bring Sid in, do the same thing at the same time, I guess. Um, it's, just, it's an interesting way to do this. And then the note there about how the thus endeth any ideas for a Hogan-Sid match at Mania, well, not necessarily. Okay. I am fascinated, and there's probably a very select group of people who could answer this question. Bruce is, Pritchard is, is probably one of them. I want to know what the long-term plans were if they had them at this moment in time, late mm. May, for, like, WrestleMania. Like, was the plan always to bring Sid in as this baby face 
and turn him on Hogan later down the line. Because so much happens, and this is part three stuff, between now and the end of the year, it's very difficult to guess what the WrestleMania plans were if they had even been formulated here in May versus what they become. Yeah, and that kind of plays out in the execution of everything too, because, you know, again, don't want to jump the gun here, but like, the actual way that it plays out, it doesn't really feel like it's as big a deal as they probably envisioned it being here at the start when they've got him fresh. Yeah, although, yeah, God, there's just so much that happens. Exactly, that's it. The, the, like, I mean, I mean, you know, there's obviously, you know, looming, this just in, Ric Flair shows up <laughs> in the early fall, and they blow through him and Hogan at the house shows and kind of have to turn to Hogan's sin, yeah. which actually was getting a better reaction at the house shows than Hogan Flair, if you can believe it. Mm-hmm. So that felt like you had to do it. And that, I mean, now we're getting into like part four stuff, but, um, or even in a 92, but it just, I think it's really interesting to kind of hypothesize what may the, what might have the long-term plan been for Sid had Flair not come in, had Warrior not left, there's just so many moving pieces here in this company. Yeah, and and, and we'll get to uh, there's a little note at the end which kind of leaves an impression on what a a plan may have been, but I don't know how much credibility you want to put into it. Um, it should be noted when it comes to Sid and his initial use, according to promotion sent to the cable company, SummerSlam will be headlined by a match made in heaven and a match made in hell. The match made in hell, and isn't that the truth? Says Dave will be Hogan and the Warrior versus Slaughter, Adnan, and Colonel Mustafa, who is in for some reason, with Sid Justice as the referee. So this basically teases several different things at once. A possible Warrior turn on Hogan, a Justice turn on Hogan, or an Adnan and Mustafa turn on Slaughter, uh, Dave says here. So that's kind of what's laid out. We didn't get any of those three things. No. We did get a splitting of the Triangle of Terror, which was the least interesting of those three options uh, in the, but again, that's the fall. I want to focus on something that to bring it back full circle to the beginning of this podcast and some irony compared to 1990. Uh, We did that 1990 series and we talked about the build to SummerSlam 90. I had mentioned if you had inserted the warrior into Hogan's program, for a possible tag against Earthquake and Bravo, it would have given him a boost. Yeah. Getting him out of that rude feud. If he, they go back and watch that summer Saren's main event episode. If he was the guy who made the save instead of Tugboat to set up a tag match, I think the crowd would have gone crazy for him. And I think his perception as an equal to Hulk Hogan um, would have gotten a boost. Yeah. A year later, here we are in 1991. He's no longer the champion, the Warrior. But he's being shoehorned into a dying Hogan program, and it, which does him no favors. He's got his own hot program with The Undertaker. And here he is. Well, we're not going to do that at SummerSlam. You know, you know we did a die. You know, he, they, he did the rude thing at SummerSlam 90, which was too long. Here, he's got a much better feud. We're not going to do that at SummerSlam. Nope. You're going to be in a tag match with Hogan as we blow off this slaughter thing. I just think that's just 
fascinating to compare the two years. Well, what a what a difference it makes, huh? You know, this time when when Hogan's the one in need here. I mean, that's the interesting thing about it. Even though this does him no favors, look at the look at the dynamic from Hogan's perspective. Hogan in '90 knew that he was going to outperform Warrior in the sense that he was the, he was the one that had the absence. He had the sympathy feud. It was his comeback story with with, with him and Earthquake. And we talked about the promos that Warwick, that Hogan was doing which were tremendous to build up his return in 1990. And as we said, SummerSlam did a good buy rate off that match. Fast forward a little bit. Now it's Hogan that's in need. Warrior mm-hmm. was the one in need in 90. Hogan's the one in need now. And we, you can, you can just hold off on that, that Warrior taker stuff because Warrior needs to be in this. We need you know, whatever strength he has at the minute, whatever uh, boon he's going to be to the numbers, as it looks like he is at the moment in the speed with taker. We want that in the Hogan program to help Hogan. Yeah, and this is stuff we'll probably talk about in what will be labeled part 3A, again, if you're keeping score at home. But um, I, I remember when this match was announced on TV, the match made in hell, I was like, what? I was like, because I was in the Warrior Taker. And I was like, why, why is Warrior not wrestling Undertaker at SummerSlam? And there were probably reasons why you didn't want to do that match one-on-one. At that show, uh, that is something again we'll talk about more in part three A, as well as the idea of bringing Sid in as the ref for the match made in hell. Because um, I think they're, you know, in from WWE's perspective, I think they recognize that Slaughter was a dead uh, heel on, to, on the top of the card, and they needed something exciting and the tease of, you know, or allure of Sid as the referee was that way to rectify it. But again. We'll talk about that in greater detail down the line. Yes, part three, we'll be going through the potential options that they had at SummerSlam. Uh, and, and again, why they went with what they did. Um, I have always had an idea for what the main event for SummerSlam 91 should have been. And it was not what it was, obviously. <laughs> uh, looking forward to hearing it. I, I will, just to mention this, Colonel Mustafa, why, this was like the big thing for Slaughter, like in the, in the, on the TV after April. After the fireball, Slaughter just does the generic stuff, talking about guerrilla warfare and how he's going to destroy Hulkamania. The big thing to like strengthen the heel side is the Iron Sheik coming back to like beat up jobbers and the three of them is like beating up these jobbers together. It's like, this, this, like, no one, the crowd doesn't care at all. Yeah, I mean, who among us has not flipped on Iranian-Iraqi relations? (laughs) Well, except the United States government, but that's, again, a different podcast for a different time. You know, I mean, uh, Sheik is going in the opposite direction, you know, I mean, whereas we supported Iraq against Iran, you know, now, uh, you know, Sheik is, he just just opposes the USA no matter who it is in the Middle East. Uh, Yeah. Very fat. He was a fat man. Did you did you remember the debut match he had? I don't. Did you catch it? Okay. So he does the camel, clutches the fish, but he's like so freaking fat that like I guess he wrenches back too far on it. The ref calls for the submission as he's like wrenching too far back. He just like rolls over. <laughs> he just like he loses the grip on the camel clutch because he's just too fat. He just like kind of rolls backwards as the bell is ringing. His arms don't go. Yeah, so, I mean, it was an ugly finish and a real uh, auspicious start to the return of the (laughs) Iron Sheik as Kurt Mustafa. Interestingly enough, Vince brings up, hey, wait a minute, this used to be the Iron Sheik. 
This is the man Hulk Hogan beat for the WWF title years ago. So they do acknowledge that past. They don't even touch on the fact that the idea of, you know, being from Iran and now being an Iraqi sympathizer makes zero sense. I mean, it's zero sense. It's actually kind of offensive, quite frankly. (laughs) It's really offensive if you know your Middle Eastern history that you're just going to, like, just randomly turn somebody from, you know, an Iranian, a guy who's, you know, legitimate Iranian, and you're going to make him an Iraqi sympathizer. That's, um, (laughs) I, I guess, Sheik wanted the payday, and he's programmed with Duggan. In an underneath feud, you know what that means. <laughs> By the way, uh, a a throwback to their aborted 1987 feud, uh, which had to be called off when they were arrested uh, together in a car doing co- doing cocaine. That's that was one of the all time great stories. I don't know if they were actually doing it at the time of the rest, but they they had coke and weed on them. And I have long, long sought after someone. I guess they would probably be the only two who could verify, but God, I just want it to come out that they were doing coke off the two by four. <laughs> that, that, that is like, I, I picture that. I just, I just picture Doug and just doing a big rail off the two by four going, Oh, <laughs> like they can out the window. Yes. I would just, I'd pay money to have that verified as a story. <laughs> I just really hope it's true. This this is the only redeemable thing, this conversation right now in 2020 about Colonel Mustafa in the WWF in 1991. Because I, I can you imagine, after, after what you just described, the back-rolling camel clutch, that this is the guy that's supposed to, like, heat up Hogan's feud. Like, yeah, uh, it, and you're right. This was the real low light of the television for this period, like these mm, slaughter squashes. It's no you, skippable. Yeah, you just like, oh, no, this again. And it, you know, the, the announcers would try you know, just to make it seem like it was important. And it just wasn't. And it wasn't getting much of a reaction at all. Uh, quite frankly, Slaughter never got much of a reaction uh, besides when they went really over the top with the promos leading up to Royal Rumble. Yeah, which did draw. But again, as we said, that was situational and the Warrior was the one that got the number. Um, it should be noted here, the apparent plan that we were talking about before, Meltzer says, with Sid Justice as a babyface, the most speculated about main event for next year's WrestleMania is Hogan versus the Warrior, with Warrior going heel at the end of this year. So that obviously does not happen. No. And wow, is that an interesting alternate timeline. If they do that, I wonder, what do you do with Sid then? Like, what's his first, basically, year in the company look like? Man, I, I, there's so many moving parts here when you think about, like, Savage, like, coming back earlier than he wanted um, mm-hmm. in 91. It's like, really? Like, it's either going to be, like, a babyface take or Savage, right? Unless he's, unless he's still a babyface up to that point, and then he gets, god damn, I even know, Jake? Yeah, I, I don't know. It feels like Taker would have been the match. Yeah. I, I don't know what the if they would have done, like, a double turn or what, but, you know, just taking a lay of the land, I, I don't know, that that kind of feels like it might have been, but who knows, and it turned, it's kind of worthless to speculate, because a lot happens between uh, now and then, and, and Sid winds up as a heel, and wrestles Hulk Hogan, obviously, at WrestleMania 8. He does, in fact, get his match. Now, obviously, we've talked a lot about Hogan, and a lot about Warrior, and their kind of relative position when it comes to drawing. Keep that in mind, because that's going to be quite the large story uh, and kind of is a big part of the reason why 
requests, Wally requests, which we'll talk about in part three. Before we get to part three, we do have 2B to get to, uh, which we'll be talking about very, very shortly here. And we've got a lot to talk about when it comes to steroids and the WWF, because the trial of Dr. George Zahorian takes place between April and June in the uh, in this little timeline that we've also got everything else in the company in terms of the undercut to talk about uh, in part 2B. So with that in mind, Kyle, any closing thoughts uh, on what we've learned today in terms of regarding Sid Vicious, suggest this come to the company, and uh, the success of the Ultimate Warrior? No, I think it's pretty exhausting. There's a lot to, yeah, like you said, to go over in part 2B. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that because the undercard was jam-packed especially compared to 1990. But uh, yeah, it, it, I'll say this uh, about, you know, Sid and Warrior and what's going on at the top of the card. It feels more exciting than it did a year ago at this time, the promotion. Oh, yeah. What years ahead, actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, but it, it's going to turn out, and I guess this is going to be kind of a big theme for the rest of 1991, the fact that the creative end of the promotion does improve is completely nullified by what happens outside the ring. Indeed. We've been talking about a lot of stuff on screen, a lot of stuff behind the scenes that will impact, obviously, uh, so just this coming in and, and being a big part of the on-screen product. But with that said, perhaps the real story of this time period is what's going on behind the scenes uh, yes. and what's going on, uh, obviously, we're going to talk about with Steroids and Joe Zahorian. Yeah, and for those of you who have been listening to all of uh, the parts of this timeline. Thank you, first of all. And, you know, the, the, the in the gym segments that we've been <laughs> doing, which always just kind of seem to be this brief aside that we just go through. We mentioned the WBF. I promise you, on our next podcast, that section uh, will become very big and uh, will become the dominant story, as a matter of fact, uh, for the remainder of 1991, if not for the remainder of the next three years. It's, it certainly certainly indicates that way. The thing with that is, I mean, when you look at what's coming, I mean, we, we, we added those you know, in the gym sections throughout the whole period of time in the 1990s for a reason, because we knew that it's going to come to this point. This is a big story that develops, um, and man, it blows up. It blows up quick, and it blows up fast. Yes, and we're not talking about the WBF pay-per-view. <laughs> Which we'll get to mention, however, we, we on, on the next podcast, so... Stay tuned. Stay with us for part two. B. Kyle, this has been an absolute treat to do this one with you today. Uh, I cannot thank you enough. Man, I, I love doing this. I'm always in such a good mood when these are over. I'd start, I actually just start skipping through the house after we've got it. Just, <laughs> my spirits are so uplifted. Hey, man, I can't wait to get onto the, uh, the undercard. I'm really excited for that on the next podcast. We've got so much to talk about, so many cool little things uh, that we're going to touch on. So for the great Kyle Ross, I am Liam O'Rourke. Thank you very much for listening, and we will be back with part 2B of our series covering the WWF in 1991 very soon. So thank you very much, and we'll talk to you again soon.